1: Listeners, friends, we have asked you before on multiple occasions to uh, ponder important questions, um, topics that you may feel passionately about. And and we've asked you to go ahead and tell us your thoughts or opinions on certain things that we know are going to be real hot button issues. Um, I do feel like today I'm going to ask you a question that's going to be rather difficult. I'm going to give you all a moment to think about it because I don't think one can come up with an instantaneous answer with such a sensitive topic. Uh, My question for all of you and for you, Troy, uh, to start this off is out of all of her dialogue. Parker Posey's portrayal of one Jennifer Jolie, what's her best line?
0: You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter. (laughs) Or my other one, my other one, my lawyer liked
1: that. God damn it, you took my choice, Troy. That was my choice. My lawyer liked that. You know there was an improvised line? Oh, well,
0: you know what? Can we just say? I mean, and I think – I don't think there's one person on the planet that is going to disagree with this statement. And if you do, let us know because I will be shocked. Can we just all agree that Parker Posey is the best fucking thing Oh, my God. I mean, without,
1: three? without a doubt. Without a fucking doubt in my mind. Though I've got to say, you know, I'm so used to Troy – Slamming and harping and, and nagging on this movie, <laughs> like I, I get down on it, on it, out of instinct because it is, you know, it's overall, it's it's going to be what we will consider to be the weakest link in the franchise. But I cannot say that after watching this movie, I can't say I didn't have a great fucking time watching this film. My God, I mean, this film is by far the most absurd of the franchise. It takes some big, big leaps. I mean, it jumps the shark. Multiple times. This film goes places it really didn't need to go as a slasher franchise. But I'm, overall, I'm okay with it. Because I watch this film, and sure, it's not scary. I mean, it really is not scary at all. But it's so strangely entertaining. And I really did not anticipate to have as much fun with it especially this go around. I've seen it so many fucking times. I did not expect to have as much fun with this film as I did upon this last viewing.
0: You know what? Agreed. But before we get into it, do you know another film's not scary Roger that we recently watched? Stephen King's fucking cat's eye. <laughs> I'm just putting that out not there guys. Because at all. Awesome. <laughs> it's time to plug our Patreon. We just released our full length episode on uh covering Stephen King's Cat's Eye. And boy, did we have a lot to say. This is our 21st full-length episode. So literally, guys, outside of these episodes that show up on your Apple podcast feed every week or your Spotify feed every week, we literally have 21 extra full-length episodes on our Patreon. All you got to do is go to patreon.com dark night of the podcast, subscribe. You'll get instant access to all of those episodes. Plus, we have uh, a segment we call Talking Bodies. I think there's 12 episodes of those. We have uh, mini episodes. I think there's 20 some of those. I mean, it's a wealth of extra bonus content for you. And you'd be helping us out tremendously. We love our patrons. We interact with them when we can. But I just wanted to, I think we had a blast uh, recording the Cat's Eye episode. (laughs) Uh, Absurd fucking film. You guys might get a little teaser of it to entice you to subscribe. So be, be on the lookout for that. So Patreon. And if you can't do that, at least leave us a five-star review. Thank you, Ghostface91, I believe, for the uh, lovely, lovely review you wrote on
1: Apple Podcasts for us. We truly appreciate it. When I saw that username, Troy, I thought, God, like, I mean, we planned the right fucking episode to review. Because Ghostface, our fan and friend over there, um, I have a feeling may be enticed by the topic we're reviewing today. The title that we have selected, I think will be right up their alley, dare I say.
0: Oh, absolutely. And you know Roger, you you're I think we're on the same wavelength and we really have never discussed this film at any length together. Like this conversation that we are going to have right now is really the first time me and you have ever discussed the film outside of making it very vocal in past episodes and just in passing that I we both I think think that this is the weakest film of the franchise. I've always, you know, had a strong disdain for this film because I love one and two so much. And the fact that this film tonally feels like a completely different movie in a completely different universe always bothered me. And we're gonna to get to the things that specifically bother me about this film, but I want to say I I I am kind of in the boat with you. I put it on to, to watch it for our review. And I just kind of sat back and Watch what unfolded, even though I knew every beat that was going to unfold because I've seen the movie multiple times. You are right. If you get in the right mindset, this film is entertaining. Does that mean it's a good slasher flick? No. My issue with this film, Roger, my big issue with this film is that this film, to me, Does not feel. I think
1: a big issue that you are touching on right here, like right out, right out the gate, Troy is. Out of all the films in the screen franchise, this is the one film for me in which Ghostface feels like an afterthought this film feels like almost like a Scooby-Doo mystery. And I mean, and I love love the characters at play. Like, you know, we've had conversations before about how certain characters, like especially Dewey, has often been written to be inconsistent. Sometimes he's like very over the top. Other times he's not. Um, I feel like watching the film this time and having really like sat down and analyzed, uh, you know, the first three entries in the series now and having recently watched five and six too. So I'm very like... I'm very much in my screen mentality right now. I'm very much um, just a fan of the franchise. I'm digging everything it offers. So going back and revisiting this entry and seeing kind of the growth that the characters experience over the overall arc of the whole series now, what is six movies. I really, I surprisingly appreciated Dewey and especially Dewey and Gale as a duo, so much more coming out of this film. These two have been through highs and lows together, and yet their strange adoration for each other sustains, and I love that for them, and I especially love that for the first time in the series, I mean, not to jump right over to the end, but the first time in the series, we get to finally have a moment that feels like a moment of closure for some of these characters. I feel like this movie... While it doesn't really hit it when it comes to motivations and killer uh, overall depiction in general, it does serve us some really fun, enjoyable, likable character development that I do genuinely appreciate about this entry. I love the journey that we get for Gale and Dewey as a duo, and not many of the other films give us that.
0: Okay, I would disagree with you, but... I don't want to spill it all now. I, I think it, it would best be served to you as we're going through the plot because there's specific things where I find problematic in terms of characterization with these characters, uh, and oftentimes I feel like the writer of this film, which is not Kevin Williamson, didn't did not watch one or two to even have a clue as far as what these characters had gone through in the past because two ends. I'll just get right to it and then we can get into the review because like I said, I think some of my comments are going to be best served in the moments they happen in the film, if that makes sense. But like at the end of part two, Dewey and Gale were a thing. I mean, they were a thing. They 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 they, they were kissing there on that room when the TV turned on. They they were a duo. I mean, she rushed to his side when he's being wheeled out of the the uh, the auditorium, the theater at Windsor College, all excited that he's still alive. And then you get to this film, and it totally unravels that with no explanation. Uh, there is a minor moment of dialogue between the two characters where you realize kind of what happened, but having them like thrusting this thrusting those two characters back into this particular film, And given them the animosity towards each other that they had at the beginning of Scream 2 just did not feel like a natural progression from what we got at the end of part two to three. It it, it just there was something missing, like to have these characters like go at each other's throat and and, and make comments and, and be all bitchy and catty towards each other right at the start of the film when they first run into each other again did not gel with what we got in part two. But that happens a lot because let's just get right into the review. I feel like the opening of Scream 3, probably the lamest of all of the films. But I do appreciate that they take a character. Do we want to call Cotton at this point a legacy character? If you want to, you take a legacy character like Cotton who has been in Scream 1 and Scream 2. And now they have the balls, at least in this film, to make him the opening kill. Something we've never gotten from a Scream film in terms of an opening kill, right? It's been uh, often uh, theorized or whatnot that, oh, well, maybe in Scream 4 or Scream 5 or Scream 6, Gale or Dewey or one of the main characters will be the opening kill to really set the the, the, the tone that anything can happen. It's never happened with the exception of this film. The problem I have with this opening is again, the problem I'm having with Gail and Dewey's introduction is that this does not feel like the Cotton Weary that we got in one or two. Uh, But Cotton Weary that we get in Scream 1 and Scream 2 is a very like, uh, like simpleton type of guy. Like he's not suave. He's not um, overly charismatic. He is a blubbering, almost comedic relief buffoon in parts of two. So now to bring him into the opening of screen three and he's, he's this huge talk show host now, uh, blah, 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 blah. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's like two. I can
1: appreciate that. I can respect your angle on, on what you explained with Gail and um, Dewey as well. I think when I came into it this time around, I, I really tried to acknowledge just how much time I feel had supposedly passed between the second and the third film. You know, the first to the second film, it literally is a matter of a high school jump to college for Sydney. Here, I feel like it's a matter of a multitude of years. Um, and I think it's almost intentional that they presented Cotton the way they did, because keep in mind, Scream 2 did end on the note of Cotton finally receiving the kind of accolades and fame he wanted. That was kind of the bone that Sydney threw him um, because of the decision he made just to help her. So he had always been wanting fame. He had always been wanting that Diane Sawyer interview. And it is a character trait that they carried through. So now, multitude of years later, he is seeing the success that's come from that. He is I think he has changed with the success that he has found. And so now he is maybe a little bit, dare I say, smarter. He has a little more couth. He's a little more polished. He still looks trashy in that all-white fucking suit. I'll say that. I mean, I don't look at this guy and think that he's necessarily a stand-up human being. I don't think the core of Cotton has changed, but I do think he now has the success he wanted, you know? Um, and, and you see it down to the, the the lovely mansion he's living in with this girlfriend whom we get barely any time with. I think my biggest issue with the opening is not the fact that they took some, some bold uh, approach with the character of Cotton um, and presented him in a completely different way, um, I think it makes sense for the character to be real, but I I do find that the introduction of his girlfriend, uh, what's her name, Christine? I think it's Christine. Throwing her into the mix makes for a very disjointed opening. That honestly, like you, you kind of hit on it. it. It it it's a great setup. I love seeing Cotton come back into the story. It does feel authentic to the Scream universe. Um, But it feels wasted. Uh, I feel like her character gets a little too much time without having any payoff. And his character doesn't get enough time. So when it comes down to the final showdown between him and the killer, he barely interacts with the killer at all. He gets to the house. You got a little moment between him and Christine where she thinks he's the killer because the killer has a fancy voice modulator that can recreate anybody's voice, even people who are dead. And then it's a matter of she gets killed, he gets stabbed twice, opening title hits. And I hate to like rush through it, but I think this whole opening sequence feels extremely rushed, especially when you look at the first two opening scenes. You know, Casey Becker and then the the, the movie theater sequence The the standout moments of those films, if you boil it down to the most memorable moments of one and two, I'd have to say it's those two scenes, you know, and then you have this and it just, it's cool in concept, but it just doesn't have the execution I would expect from a Scream film. And that's where it falters for me. And unfortunately, that's where, dare I say, all of the death scenes falter for me. None of them live up to the kills of the first two movies.
0: The death scenes in this film are, I, th- I think you said, and you, you kind of put it out there like ghost is an afterthought in this film. So are the death scenes. Another problem I have with the film is that the death scenes are very rushed. Um, I am not a fan of films where, you know, multi- a multitude of characters are taken out within a matter of seconds. And that's kind of what happens in this film. Uh, As we get to the climax, but we're not even close, but let's just, let's break down this opening scene. You mentioned the voice changer. Basically what you have is we cotton weary is now somehow this, the most popular talk show host in America. I'm still not fucking buying it. I'm sorry, but he is. Okay. So he's driving home. He gets a call. He's talking to his agent about a role that he's taken in this low budget slasher film. And he, he's demanding that his agent get him better work. He gets another phone call. It's this beautifully pleasant voiced woman and you know she starts talking to him and he's like oh I think you have the wrong number she recognizes his voice and she's like aren't you cotton weir you sound just like him and he says yes she's like oh I think you, I think he sounds sexy. And he's flirting with this girl and you know he ultimately asks her where she's at and she makes the comment of why would you want to know that you have a girlfriend cotton he says how do you know and then it changes to the Ghostface voice. I'm only highlighting this conversation, yes, because this is the moment where we realize that uh, Ghostface can now mimic voices. Uh, it's a tool that's used multiple times in this film. I don't believe. <laughs> I mean, it's it's absurd. I, I don't buy that there is a device out there that can perfectly mimic anybody's voice over the phone. I mean, this thing sounds exactly like the character it's supposed to be. Except when the killer is using it in front of the actual victim, you know, not over the phone, and then they're they're like using it. And it doesn't sound anything like any of these characters. I think this is like the first thing that lets you know that this film is definitely a little bit more loose with reality, because like, there's nothing that exists that's going to mimic anybody's voice as perfectly as this thing does. And it is the moment where you start to realize that this film kind of is taken, like you said, and it's a it's it's a term I've used, I've heard used to describe this film multiple times, and it's a Scooby Doo approach.
1: Yeah, and I think that really is the perfect way to look at this film. This is a character driven film more than anything, and it's certainly more than a a slasher or a horror inspired film because there really is is very little to fear about this movie. And, you know, even when you look at this opening sequence, it has this whole moment where cotton breaks into like, what feels like almost like a high speed chase for a second. He's in his car speeding back to the mansion. Uh, Cause he suspects that Christine's in danger. And uh, I feel like they're really just trying to go bigger, bigger, bigger with this sequence. You know, it's scream three. We've got to make sure it's bigger than the last two. And because of that, it feels like they're just trying too hard. Um, and, and it just never puts fear in me. Like, I've got to say about the last, you know, the last two Scream films, five and six, honestly, the approach to either opening sequence put fear in me. I had moments where I was like, don't do that. Don't go in there. Don't go in that alley. I never feel that with this opening scene. And that's disappointing to go into a film wanting to feel a sensation of, uh, of, of genuine fear, which you are. Used to taking away from this franchise and not getting that, it almost sets you up for disappointment right off the bat.
0: Well, I feel like yes, you you know you got to spend a a, a, big, a chunk of time with Casey Becker in that opening scene of Scream. You got to spend a chunk of time with her. You get to know her endearing qualities. Same thing with uh, Maureen Evans, Jada Pinkett's character in Part Two. You spend a significant amount of time with the character before her death. In this one, you don't really spend a lot of time with either. Cotton Weary, or sorry, there's nothing characterization-wise that makes me like all of a sudden care about Cotton Weary. He is just like this douchey talk show host all of a sudden, out of nowhere. And then his girlfriend, probably the least developed character in the entire Scream franchise. You, This girl is pointless. I've always found the casting choice of Christine to be, I don't know, interesting, underwhelming, You know, this is Scream 3. Scream 2 and Scream 1 and 2 were major successes at the box office. Scream was a franchise that everyone was trying to get involved in. And, you know, they were kind of they kind of set themselves up for being known for like their opening kill. Who's gonna be the opening kill? Who's gonna be the opening kill? Christine is technically the first one to die in this opening scene no characterization whatsoever. And then I just find the casting choice very odd because it was kind of like this unknown actress. I feel like they could have brought somebody in with a little bit more like clout to them uh, and, and, and had them play this role. And I've just always been intrigued by the casting choice, just me personally, and nothing against Kelly Rutherford at all. She's great. But really? Like you go from Drew Barrymore, Jada Pinkett to her?
1: I also just feel like, for being a two-hour-long film, because this is this is this is now the second longest in the franchise, I believe, uh, after six, um, but you spend so much time with the characters, but I do feel that one thing that I also think might be a solution for what you said earlier about not buying Gale and Dewey and their connectivity is there's not enough setup for uh, kind of where any of these characters are at in their lives for me to feel like I can just jump right in and feel caught up you know like right now with what you're saying with cotton if you would have given me a few more minutes of exposition to understand why cotton is where he's at how he got to be where he's at um maybe you would have bought it a little more and maybe for me i would have felt like this opening was just a little more satisfying i feel like there's so much crammed into this storyline that it at times feels a bit bloated it's it's a, it's a long movie, but it feels like they're cramming a lot of shit in there, and because of that, certain certain things, certain bits of development, do feel like they just rush through it, or they kind of just for you know force feed it to us so we can get through it and on to the next plot point.
0: Well, and I do think it's important to stop and and acknowledge something that diehard Scream fans know, and if we don't mention it, and they're fans of Scream Three, they're going to point it out to us. Is that Remember, Kevin Williamson's concept for Scream 3 was completely different than what we got. Scream 3 ended up being uh, heavily, heavily, I want to say, neutered and reworked because of the Columbine massacre. The original concept for this film, I think, would have been more cohesive with part one and part two. But ultimately, they brought in an entirely different writer and I don't think, and I think this is a really important thing to point out, I don't think Aaron Kruger necessarily knew the Scream franchise as well as he should have in terms to take over writing part three. Um, because there are inconsistencies with characters. Although I will say, I think Nev Campbell, this is perhaps for me one of her strongest performances in the Scream franchise, to be honest with you, which surprised me this time around how how great she is uh, with her limited time on screen because where we say ghostface is an afterthought. I mean, I think her presence is felt throughout the film, but there are huge chunks of, mom, of of time where Nev Campbell is not on screen and that we know why that is she was busy filming other things. Um, but yeah, this whole film, we have to acknowledge that was it really suffered a lot of um, a lot of setbacks. You know, they did not want to go the route that Kevin Williamson initially wanted to go because of Columbine and the impact that that had on America and violence and and how that became the forefront of everything at that time period and still is. Sadly, it's never really been addressed properly, but the whole concept of this opening scene is that Ghostface wants to know where Sidney Prescott is. Cotton refuses to tell Ghostface as he doesn't know, and he's stabbed to death. Opening scene done. We do cut to Sydney the lovely Nev Campbell uh, living in isolation at this farmhouse. And I do love the fact that she goes outside with this dog, this lovely dog. I like this dog. It's just, if you, if you will pay attention to this dog, it looks so happy to be in this film. Every time it's, it's on screen, it's smiling. It's running around wagging its tail. I do love the fact though. And it's just like silly things like this, that like, I'm like, Oh my God. Like she goes to her gate to like check the mail or what? I don't even remember what it is. I think she's checking the mail and it's literally Roger. This <laughs> This gate is like waist high to her. Like a fucking five year old could jump over this gate, but she has to make a point to to spend several seconds showing her set, setting the alarm on this gate. I'm like, what the fuck for? Anybody could jump over this. Vern Troyer could get over this gate.
1: Oh my God. I um, I, I really like the development that they do set up for for Sydney because she's obviously right now trying to move on and cope. I guess the only way she knows how, you know, she's taking on a new identity. She goes by the name of Laura, at least through her job. She's working uh, with a, um, like a women's um, abuse hotline, you know, talking to women who are going through trauma, helping them, um, helping them cope as only she knows how. Um, But because of that, you know, she's basically isolated herself in the, in the mountains. like she's, she's living in this, like this, this super high, uh, like uh, high security, like, farmhouse like it's just a weird it's a weird setup but I get it like she's been through some shit and um I can kind of see you know if we are jumping in with this time jump that I do want to kind of keep establishing because I do think characters we're picking up with characters in completely different places than we left off and for her character there's definitely been um a, a journey That she's gone through trying to find how to live with what she's experienced thus far. And I don't think she's necessarily succeeding right now. I mean, she's getting through her day-to-day, but she's clearly living in fear, uh, heavily arming everything. This is something that's touched on a few times right up to the final shot of the movie. You know, she's really living in fear of, of, of what's happened and if it's going to happen again. I do think some more time with her, even in just exploring this a little bit further, would have done her character so... So well for this film, but when she is on camera, you're absolutely right. I I really was shocked at how tender and touching some of her moments are. Uh, I love watching Nev Campbell cry. No one can cry like Nev Campbell, and some of the moments where she is expressing grief or fear even when it comes down to some of the more absurd sequences with what's about to happen visions of parents. I mean, we thought it was bad in five and six. God damn. i I forgot about the Maureen Prescott hallucination sequences in this movie. And they are not welcome additions in my opinion. Uh, where the fuck? Like I can't get down on five and six anymore. This is something that was already being thrown out in, in Scream three. So they think it's fair, fair game to bring parents back and via hallucinations. Some, some crazy nonsense. But but Nev Campbell is such a rock throughout the course of this film. She is holding it down. She is the anchor that I can even swallow that pill and get through those otherwise truly absurd sequences because she's just so strong in this role.
0: She is. She really is. I like. I said. I I really think it is pr- one of her best performances in the entire franchise. And yes, the ghost mother. Yeah. All these people that are bitching about how ridiculous Ghost Billy is in part five and six. Do you not remember Ghost fucking Marine Prescott?
1: on that big hair. Come on. That's what I'm going as for Halloween. Super obscure. I'm going as ghost Maureen Prescott. And just you wait and see the amount of hairspray I'm going to have to use on that wig. This woman's hair is teased. Jesus. (laughs) She's. And it's cringeworthy. It's It's
0: cringeworthy. I don't know what they were thinking. But hey. Yeah. So Sydney is now a grief counselor. Now we get Gail, who is speaking at this, I, I guess it's a convention or something for future wannabe reporters and she is just like telling them you know you better break all the rules and stop at nothing because you need to be okay with the world hate hating you because you'll never get ahead otherwise and so some audience member stands up and calls her out and he's like so you're saying we should be backstabbers to each other because that's how you got ahead and she's like well pretty much he's like was it worth it miss weathers like who are you sit down But, uh, but I mean, it's kind of like, she's back to her, like, and I like this Gail, I I do. Uh, but it's like, she did a 180 degree shift from how she ended scream Two, And now she's back to the, like the condescending cutthroat Gail Weathers. And again, it's a Gail Weathers that I love. It's the Gail Weathers that we fell in love with in the first two films up until the end of part two, where I feel like she realized it wasn't really necessary for her to do that. But it also, to me, it just seemed kind of like lazy. Like the character has no evolution, and you know.
1: But Troy, that that's her story arc for all of the films. I
0: know, I know. That's where I was just going. I was just going to say that. But you know, even in like four, five, or six, I feel like in four though she is a little bit more restrained. I would say, you know, I would say four, five, and six, she's not as cutthroat, vindictive, like out for herself as she is in the first two, in the first three films. Um, but this one, just go, taking it back. And, lo, and let's be honest, those bangs do not help. We haven't even touched on the bangs yet. The bangs do not help.
1: I mean, we got a whole episode for the bangs. <laughs> it's just a full episode that we're just talking about those bangs. Oh, my God, they're tiny, Troy. Yes. I don't. <laughs>
0: definitely a, a fashion choice, I would say.
1: Have you ever heard her talk about it? Talk about why she went with the bangs?
0: I have not that she- heard Why'd she Her stylist
1: like fucked it up. Like they were they were, they were down to the day of filming, and and they were trying to crop it a certain length, and they cut it too short, so they had to go with like a a different take on it. And so she got stuck with them the whole film. And she's like, I knew from day one, I hated those fucking bags so much. They are distracting. But I mean, when you have something that becomes such an iconic look, even if it's for the worst possible reasons, I mean, like you'll never forget those bangs.
0: But at this convention, you know, she is. Uh... Approached by this woman who tells her that there's a young man outside waiting for her from the police. So she goes out there, and it is Detective Mark Kincaid, played by Patrick Dempsey. Swoon.
1: He looks so handsome in this film.
0: Patrick Dempsey has always been handsome. Probably one of my first crushes was Patrick Dempsey in Can't Buy Me Love. Understandable. Yeah, he's, he's serviceable in this. I like the character. His, his uh, chemistry with Nev Campbell is, is palpable. I'm I'm glad that it's insinuated later in the franchise that Sidney married him um, because they do make a, a very dynamic couple. But he is he's pleasant, but he is approaching Gail Weathers because Cotton Weary was murdered and they happen to find a photograph on top of the body, which is another sort of trope that is used multiple times in this film. Whenever Ghostface ghost face kills somebody in this film, he's leaving a photo of Maureen Prescott.
1: I mean, if there's something to be said about the Scream franchise, it's fucking thorough. I mean, they keep they keep tying every fucking loose string together, bringing it back to the source. And, you know, for as many complaints as I have of the storyline of where this actually goes, the reasoning behind why the killer's doing what they're doing, I do appreciate just how much they they dig their fingers into the, the history of the franchise that came prior. Because, you know, Maureen Prescott... She is a presence in this film. Um, You see throwback video clips of her. You see young photos of her. Like, you're learning more about Maureen Prescott than anybody else in this fucking movie. This woman's been dead now for multiple years. But you're you're really getting to know Maureen Prescott in Scream 3. I do have to say another thing, you know, touching on Gail. Like, I think it's fair to say that while Sydney is certainly the focal point of the overall film, Gail, in a way, is the female lead. Because Sydney is, uh, well, Nev was unavailable for a portion of filming. You know, they really put a lot of focus on on Gale and the, then Dewey. But you are following Gale for, I would say, a majority of the film. You do go back to Sydney and see her coping and dealing and crying and having visions of her mom. But it's just kind of like, meanwhile, it's like a meanwhile back at the ranch kind of vibe. Gail is carrying the bulk of the story here. She's the one that's sleuthing as she can, as only she can do. I mean, as only Gail Weathers can sleuth. She's finding shit out. She's working with the police. You are following her more so, at least for the first chunk of the film. Um, And I like that. You know, Gail Weathers is my favorite character in the franchise for a reason. And Courtney Cox, she's great in this film.
0: I am okay with with Gail being the focal point of this film because it works. It works. Let's be honest. It works. I, I don't. I don't necessarily need Nev Campbell in this film more than she is, and it's my issue that I've mentioned when we you know talked about Scream Five and Scream, particularly Scream Six, is that there are only so many like points or so many films that I want to see Sidney Prescott be chased around by Ghostface. Like I was one of the few. That was all about welcoming a film, a Scream film without Nev Campbell. I I was like, hey, let's see what they do with it. Because how many films do you want to see Nev Campbell chased around by Ghostface? How many? Uh, It's become super repetitive. And she did the exact same thing in Scream 4 that she did in Scream 5. Scream 6, we all know how that, that turned out, despite your personal opinions of it. it's the highest grossing domestic it's domestically the highest grossing film of the franchise it obviously uh, connected with fans but like i actually when i was talking to, to some people about like oh well sydney doesn't need to really be the focus of scream six at all and they're like getting all defensive because oh it's sydney how can you say that she is scream well no look at three look at three she was not really the focal point of scream three and it worked just fine and I think it was like a kind of a welcome departure to have her character kind of take the background of scream three. So that a character like a Gail who is a fan favorite could helm the film. And it, I think it works. Courtney Cox is strong. I don't feel, feel like the film loses anything. It, it makes sense. It flows. It, 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 I will give it that I will give it that. I don't think it was a mistake to, to put her, to put the Sydney character in the background like they did. And, And it's actually quite smart if you kind of watch how the plot unfolds. But that evening, Sydney does see on the news that Cotton was murdered. And of course, she starts to freak out because it's obviously you can tell by the expression on her face that she's like, oh, shit. You know, is it starting again? Now we cut to Sunrise Studios where apparently Stab 3 is in
1: production
0: and it's being helmed by director, young director, Roman Bridger, who is extremely irate that they may be shutting down his production because Cotton Weary was murdered. And we find out Cotton Weary was in Stab 3. That was the cameo in a cheesy slasher flick that he was referring to at the beginning of the film. Um, and John Milton is there, played by Lance Hendrickson, who is always a welcome addition to any film, right? And the two cops walk in, and I do like this moment where like Milton is like, Hey, uh, you don't think this film had anything to do with Cotton Weary's death, do you? And the one cop's like, He's doing a movie called Stabbed. He was stabbed. (laughs) It just kind of walks away.
1: (laughs) I gotta say this film. If, I, if I'm going to give it any crown, any, uh, any first place award within the franchise, uh, I dare say it has the, the best one-liners of the series. There are so many lines in this movie, and it's not just restricted to one Parker Posey. I mean, there are a multitude of lines in this film that I still hear to this day, and it gets a chuckle. Out of me, so I gotta say, you know, it maybe isn't the best thing to take away from a slasher—the best one-liners. Um, but this movie does often hit with the humor. Uh, I I gotta tip my hat in that direction. Like it does make me chuckle uh, on occasion, which I really do appreciate about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Aaron Kruger is not a bad writer. He's written some pretty good scripts. I just feel like he may, possibly wasn't the right choice for this particular franchise but you you do get a scene of the various cast members sitting on the porch which is a replica of Sydney's house basically inside the studio they have built a set that is an exact replica exact replica of Sydney's house Stu's house basically Woodsboro i mean they have this house down to a t right down to where a, f- a specific picture was on the wall it is precise and I'm, I'm thinking, how did they, get, how did they get that to be that fucking precise, but they know it's everything.
1: But that is one of the cooler aspects, I think, of the movie. It does make for a few moments, uh, especially like when Sydney gets to see the location, the reaction on her face. Um, it is cool seeing everything so dead on, but I felt the same thing, Troy. I was like, holy fuck, like who went into that house with a magnifying glass and literally like down to the books on her bookshelf. Like Jesus Christ exactly no i was point i was thinking that i'm like who was the set designer give them
0: an oscar because like literally you look at like the desk in her bedroom and it's the, the exact same like pencil holder is sitting right like come on like this person deserves a fucking oscar yeah but it, it is cool but yeah you get introduced to this cast roger and you know what oh god you know you get this cast i feel like there could have been so much potential with these characters And I, I I sadly feel like these, this new group of characters, this cast of Scap of Stab Three that we get introduced to. We get Angelina, uh, who is playing Sydney's character. We get Sarah Darling, played by Jenny McCarthy. You get uh, the character of Dewey, who's now played by this Tom guy. You get Tyson, who is playing a secondary character, who is supposedly the Randy ripoff or whatever he says. But they're they're discussing the fact that you know could they be in danger because of Cotton's death and and Sarah's like no 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 this isn't what about this isn't all about Cotton at all we're not in any danger and of course the little mousy Emily Mortimer Angelina character who's supposed to be playing Sydney is like oh I hope nothing you know is is wrong and it's mentioned that she auditioned through it like she won the role of Sydney through a contest. Like fifty thousand girls auditioned through this contest to play Sydney, and she's
1: the one they picked. I mean she's she's a fun addition in the sense of how creepy she gets, like as the film goes on. but like you're right, like none of these, none of these characters were given time to base. I almost feel bad. like, I mean, Tyson, Like, you barely see him at all. He's in it for maybe three scenes briefly. And I I feel like the character of Candy, played by Jenny McCarthy, I always hear people slam on her character so much. But when I came back and watched this, I was like, she's just underutilized. Like, if anything, she's funny in the role. The whole bit coming up with her in the studio later, where she's on the phone with Roman, and she keeps commenting on the script being, like, rewritten over and over. Like, she's so self-obsessed. I actually think she's kind of fun in the character. but. They've added this extra layer of these additional add-on characters that are so secondary. You know they're not moving the plot whatsoever. They're just there to be sacrificial lambs, and you just don't care about them. And when you think of the Scream franchise and what makes it tick and what makes it work is it's almost every single film offers really great characterization. And that's also from like the supporting players as well. Scream 4 has so many great supporting characters, multitudes of them. Uh, That's why Hayden Pintier came back in Scream 6, because we felt connected with Kirby. This film, none of the new characters to be introduced across the board really resonate with me. And that's disappointing.
0: With the exception of Jennifer Jolie, right?
1: Well, she's in a league all of her own. Like, let's be honest. She got all of the charisma. Everybody else was left with nothing. Jennifer Jolie, I mean... God damn, Parker Posey! She's coming up here in a minute. We might as well just fucking get to the hot topic.
0: It, uh, yeah, she. It, this is her moment. This is she comes on set. Uh, Gail shows up, and Jennifer Jolie immediately runs up to Gail and recognizes her and introduces herself. And right away, they have there's like this hostility between them. You know, it's because Jennifer Jolie is like, oh, my God, it's you, Gail Weathers. I'm playing you. Uh, You're in my mind constantly. And Gail Weathers is like, I guess that explains why I have migraines. And they have this little verbal spat where like Jennifer's next comment is, I'm sorry about 60 minutes too, but entertainment tonight's a pretty good fallback. And Gail's like, I'm sorry about Brad Pitt, but being single, that's a pretty good fallback.
1: And to be played by an actress with such depth and range. (laughs) The catty commentary between these two, you know, building off what I was just saying about weak characterization, it is strange to me that whoever sat down and wrote these characters and gave them so little purpose or meaning could also then turn around and create a character like Jennifer Jolie, who is so right within this, this Scream universe and really... Honestly, like let's be real, should have survived and been around for five more films because the potential in this character, oh my god, the development in the friendship between Gail and Jennifer Jolie, like it starts off as this really kind of like, um, kind of almost heated, like <laughs> tense hostility between the two of them. By the end of the film, these two are like working together in unison. They're solving crimes. They are the Daphne and Velma. I mean, I would pay good money to see a spin-off. Jennifer Jolie-Galesweather's road trip buddy comedy film. I would pay good money for it. We were very much deprived of, of seeing an ex- extended character from her. Um, I don't understand how they could offer us so something so fun and, and something so enjoyable and still fail in the other ways they did with this script. But I do think a lot of that falls on Parker Posey and her ability just to create physical humor and improvisation. I think that really is just her taking something and making it 10 times better than it was probably written.
0: Well, you know, she she did express interest in returning to the franchise, you know, yeah, we see her get stabbed and we see her laying on the ground, but it's like, it's kind of that Kirby effect, right? Did she really die? Uh, so it would be cool to bring her back for scream seven. I'd be all for that because one of the things that pisses me off about this film is how quickly, Uh, The characters are dispatched at the end of the film, particularly Jennifer Jolie's character. It's not satisfying whatsoever. But yeah, there is a dynamic between Gail and and, and, uh, Jennifer's character that is just so fun to watch. It's a joy to watch these two together on screen. It's almost like Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy in Heat, right? They start out at each other's throats, but by the end of the film, they're working together. It's great. It's the best thing about the film, hands down. Whenever Parker Posey's on screen, that is the best that the film's going to get. But we now Dewey shows up and you know, I can't help, but and I get it. I get it. But when Dewey shows up, I kind of had to roll my eyes because I'm like, okay, how contrived can we get? But it's something I got over. He's, he's there. Of course he's there. We're just going to put him on this set because they needed a set consultant or whatever he says he's there for, but he's also now become like Jennifer Jolie's right-hand man. She is, He's like her protector. Like she feels comfortable with him, And, um, and Gail was like, you're working with her. And Jennifer is like, yes, he's gotten to, got me to know the real Gail, including the one with the lost lonely little girl. lonely little what
1: there is something about parker posey's delivery of her dialogue everything she says there's like a just like this level of just like intensity and almost like a breathiness to it that it's just like it it feels it almost feels like it should feel out of place or feel like a caricature but for some reason for this character it works like some of the decisions she makes are so like not realistic but i still buy it from her
0: I buy it 100%. And actually, I think it's kind of clever. I, I wonder if, because she's playing an actress at the studio, this uh, Sunset Studios that has been around forever. And we know, we kind of get, we kind of are, we get to know that the, the studio is known mainly for like these low budget horror films that were made in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And now they're doing like Stab, Stab 2, Stab 3. Like her performance almost in a way, Parallels like the performances that we would see in, in like seventies and you know, eighties films, like, and I'm thinking of like almost like specific, like Italian films, like think about a film like deep red, Roger wink, wink, where you have like a character or actress like Daria Nicolode, who's also, who's in a lot of Argento's films, but her dialogue delivery is oftentimes so unnatural and it doesn't fit. What's going on in the film, but it kind of works, and I feel like that's the same thing we're getting with with Parker Posey. Is like she's in her own little, own little world in the studio. You know, that's she is apparently she's the most well known actress of this cast, right? So she's in her own little universe, and it just it it works that way. It's almost, like I said, it's almost very clever what she's doing. I think she's hearkening back to some of these other performances and other time periods and I, I really really get a kick out of it because like you said yeah some of it should not work but it all does
1: when she's so devoted to it too like she thinks she's she really thinks she's like channeling gail weathers like she there are moments where she's like watching gail and completely recreate recreating like how she walks she's literally trying to out gail gail weathers which i really admire about her character i even love the way she runs like she does this thing it's very like physical with her whole body where like, it, <laughs> like she like her whole upper body is like very like jolty and it's almost looks like she's like running in high heels that are a little bit too big on her like because the way she runs just does not seem natural but again it works i i i don't know if, if they would bring her back into the franchise Part of me wants it, part of me doesn't. Because, you know, we keep talking about like how are, are these characters fucking superhuman? Like, how are so many people coming back and not being killed after being stabbed multiple times? But if, if there is one character that I would, you know, suspend disbelief just to see more of them, it is it is Jennifer Jolie. I mean, like, give me one more round. Let her get a reward.
0: I would definitely buy her coming back the then over like Stu, who obviously is dead. And, you know, there's all these people that are still speculating. Oh, Stu's going to come back. No, he's fucking not. He had a fucking 75 pound TV dropped on his head. He's not coming back. Uh, At least Jennifer Jolie kind of has the exact same death that that Kirby did, right? We see her get stabbed in the stomach. She falls to the ground. I don't know. possible she survived. Let's see. Then Tom comes up and confronts Gail about a story she did about him crashing his car. And she's like, well, sometimes as a journalist, you have to embellish. And then she gets Dewey finally alone. And she tells Dewey uh, that Cotton, Cotton's killer left a picture of Maureen. He already knows about it. And of course, she's like, have you told Sydney?" And he's, Sydney doesn't need to know you, doesn't need you and your camera around. And, you know, they're very hostile towards each other. This is not the Gale and Dewey that we got at the end of Scream 2. These are, they're back at each other's throats. But John Milton does come out and recognize Gale and has her escorted out of the studio and we get this. I guess it's supposed to be funny. I don't think it is, just because I'm not a big Jay and Silent Bob fan. I know you can crucify me, but we do get their cameo where they're like, "Oh man, look, it's Connie Chung," and she flips them off.
1: Oh, I hate this cameo. It feels so out of place. I get that there is room for, um, you know, uh, uh, pop culture acknowledgments. A lot of times, the soundtrack feels very relevant. There's more more creed in this movie than I could ever possibly hope for to, to incorporate like a Jay and silent Bob into a scream just feels very forced. It feels like a, a big time, like a uh, production company, like making a decision to be like, Hey, I want to kind of cross streams with two of our, two of our titles. So that way we can kind of cash in on that. Uh, I don't feel like there's any room for that in the scream franchise. I never wanted to see a crossover with Scream in anything. So it just felt so fucking out of nowhere. I do not like that cameo at all.
0: Well, they're known for, they're known for comedy, right? And so, so why are you having cameos of, of two actors known for comedy in a horror film? At least like Scream 1 gave us Linda Blair, which made fucking sense, right? She's a horror icon. So this should also be a good indication for the viewer when you see Jay and Silent Bob pop up in a Scream movie, that it's probably not going to be heavy on the horror, that that's not what they're going for, right? Uh, It just, yeah, I, I cringe at this particular, um, Cameo. It's just that uh, her. I, I do like the return of Sid's dad again. Why? I mean, he has like 30 seconds of screen time, but it's the same actor that played her dad in part one. So, Hey, welcome back to the franchise for 30 seconds. You know, she is letting him know like how guilty she feels about the fact that she is thinking that it's basically that none of this would have happened if, if her mother would not have had these affairs, right? That this is all because of her mother And he just wants her to come home. He's like, I'm worried about you. You, you live out here by yourself. It's like, you almost don't even exist. And she says, that's the point. Psychos can't kill what they can't find. Um, So it's obvious that Sydney is still carrying a lot of this fear and a lot of this, she's been traumatized by this experience. And I will say, I buy it a lot more in Scream 3 than I do in Halloween 2018 With with Laurie Strode living in almost the same type of environment, scared to death of Michael Myers, who hasn't been seen for 40 years. And she's, you know, um, it's kind of the same. It's like a parallel, you know, Sydney Prescott and Laurie Strode are in a parallel in this film and in Halloween 2018. But I feel like Sydney's journey or her reaction is just makes a lot more a lot more sense. And that evening we do get the first of sydney's ghost mother at the window and again motherfuckers i don't want to hear any word about ghost billy because ghost maureen prescott is far worse than ghost billy
1: ghost maureen prescott feels like i'm watching like a bad local community theater production of like uh of like of like (laughs) of like i don't know like the fall of the House of Usher. Like she's coming out in this flowing gown with big old hair saying things like, Sydney, Sydney. Oh, you know who I was, Sydney. Like it's just like, it is so hokey. And I think like what you're saying about Sydney being a stronger character than um, than the Laurie Strode from the 2018, I still agree with that because I do appreciate that No matter how weird or absurd or comedic this film gets, at least Sydney's character never falls susceptible to it. Her reactions always seem unusually, like, realistic and believable. None of the strange humor that plagues this movie ever affects her. When Sydney is on camera, even when she's being haunted by the ghost of her mother, she still manages to play it off like a fucking pro. I mean, goddamn Nev Campbell, I feel like she can handle anything that's coming at her because... This moment really should be a failure. Everything to do with ghost Maureen Prescott should be a failure, but she still manages to make me buy it. And that's shocking. Good on her.
0: Her reaction never really plays into the hokiness that is this scene, right? The scene is just so ridiculous. It's nothing we've seen in a scream film prior to this. And I do feel like scream, you know, scream five and six definitely pulled this element out of scream three for Billy Loomis. But I buy it with Skeet Ulrich a uh, uh, much more because at least his dialogue is not ridiculous. Uh, at least the dialogue and the things that Billy is saying doesn't sound like, like you said, like a high school production, like the, the dialogue that they make Maureen say. And I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like the del- like the delivery, the voice manipulation or whatever. But to me, the actress is terrible as well. The, the line delivery is so bad. And I don't know if it's necessarily her or was she dubbed. I don't know. But the line, every line that this Ghost Marine Prescott says is horrible. It's terribly delivered. She's like, You're poison, Sydney, just like me. Everything you touch dies. And then as she goes to the window, Ghostface jumps up. Scares her, and it's
1: a dream. I have a really big issue with where they go with the Maureen Prescott uh, specter, because the, do they go anywhere with? Her? Well, I mean, you got a moment coming up where you where she basically she sees Maureen Prescott in like in the the house replica. She sees the the body stand up, and then again at the end of the movie, you see it again, and it's it implied that all of this she's actually really been hearing these voices. I don't understand how that's we'll we'll get to it but i need to put it out right there right now i need to put it out there right now the conclusion to introducing the ghost marine prescott it's not just unsatisfying it's kind of upsetting. It makes no sense at all. It pisses me off. I I could have completely done with all of this. We didn't need Maureen Prescott to even really come back into the storyline. We could have tried something new here. But yeah, it it does not help at all. And uh, the conclusion to this is really just, I think, one of the weakest aspects of the movie, but we'll get there towards the finale.
0: So now Sarah Darling is at the Stab 3 office at Sunset Studios. She shows up for a script reading with Roman. He's not there yet, but Tyson jumps out and scares her. He has some scissors in his head. So this is the second of three scenes that poor Tyson's in. Uh, And, you know, she he's like, oh, Roman should be here anytime. I don't know. I haven't seen. He said he was on his way. So Tyson leaves. And as she's waiting, she's looking at one of his music video trophies and the phone rings and she drops the trophy and breaks its head. I I, I will say I like the fact that there's a little comment made by Roman later on in the film that comes back to this that I I do think is kind of funny. But Roman's on the phone and, you know, he's like, hey, I'm stuck in traffic. Uh, Can you want to start running our lines now? And she's like, yeah, Sure. And of course, this is the moment you were talking about where, and I think Jenny McCarthy is very endearing here and self, I mean, it's kind of like a self referential thing, right? Or a self parody because she's talking about how she's so upset that this character has to be naked. That Why does the character have to be in the shower? When kind of that's, isn't that like where Jenny McCarthy kind of got her start? Oh, yeah. Wasn't she like in Playboy and stuff like that? So, yeah, I do like the fact that she's poking a little bit fun at herself. And she's also poking fun at the fact that the Scream scripts notoriously were rewritten many, many times because they kept leaking, particularly Scream 2, the script for Scream 2. So I I do like this whole moment. I actually think Jenny McCarthy pulls it off. And it's also the only character from the cast, the new cast, the cast of Scream 3 and the new cast of this film of Stab 3, sorry, and Scream 3, she's the only character that has a moment yeah. with Ghostface. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's pretty... I think the build-up to it is pretty good, but then the, the kill is lame as fuck.
1: Oh, it's so disappointing, man. It's so disappointing because it's really... It's starting to set you up for what you think is going to be, like, the CC chase sequence. You know, it's going to be that first big kill that really, like draws it out and keeps you keeps your heart racing and it starts off on a strong note. And I love that she's not even picking up on it at first. Like she's just not even acknowledging like when, when Roman starts kind of changing the dialogue and everything, she's like, that's not in the script. Is this is another Danbury, right? Like it just, it's so well played. So when she finally does realize, uh, you know, that it is the killer and she goes to hide herself and she, she's almost practically saved by a security guard who just, She thinks it's the killer coming, so she hides from him. I really like the setup for this. I love that they start to take her into the prop room, into the costume racks. Like These are the elements of a film studio I love to see. This could have been explored so much further. This chase sequence... They give us just a taste of, of what I wanted to be a fucking meal. You know, like the whole thing with the fake props coming up and everything with the fake knives, like I could have done with so much more of that. Give her a whole chasing through the whole fucking office, but it moves so quick. And before you know it, she's stabbed in the back and she's thrown through a window and that's it. And you're right. Like, why is the kill so fucking lame? This should have been something that was awesome. And it's just not even... It doesn't feel like that big of a moment. You know, the the kill feels like the lamest moment of the whole sequence.
0: That's that's all of the kills in this film, Roger. That's why I say it doesn't feel like it's a slasher film, because when you get a moment where you're thinking, oh, God, yeah, this is going to be an awesome chase scene or an awesome lead up to something. All it is stab characters dead. Yeah, you get this moment, like, I, I do think it was clever, I will say, I do think it was clever that Roman, the voice of Roman, is the caller with this first death scene of one of the new characters, right? I do think that was a smart decision in terms of throwing the audience off, and I do like, you know, the transition from the voice of Roman into the ghost face where he's like, this is a new script, it's called Sarah gets skewered like a fucking pig. And yeah, she, there's this moment where she's like hiding in all of these ghost face costumes and yeah, her confrontation with the killer where she's picking up the different weapons and trying to use them, but they're just like flimsy rubber weapons. But then all of a sudden, yeah, he throws her through a window, stabs her in the back. That's it.
1: Yeah, I mean, come on, man. Like uh, it's the first time in the franchise that I feel like they just weren't concerned about showing how people die and uh, and i wish i could say that it changed but it doesn't like the movie maintains that through the whole the whole film
0: but again i i know i know it was the response to columbine and the call for violence in films to be toned down i mean i don't know what would happen if they would have just pushed through with with elaborate graphic death sequences. I don't know how it would have played out if it would have got past the studio. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that's why this film is so watered down. We do get a scene with Dewey and Gale at an outdoor coffee shop. And she is asking him why he's there. You said you never wanted to leave Woodsboro. And okay, so I'll give you this. This is a little bit of exposition, I guess, to explain their hostility. Apparently after part two, Gail did move to Woodsboro to be with Dewey. However, he did not want to leave. She got offered 60 minutes too, and she had to take it. It was going to be good for her career. So she moved to New York and left Dewey behind. So I guess, okay, I'll give them that. Hey, at least they tried to provide a backstory no a reason why Gail and Dewey are at each other's throats. It just, I don't know. I wish it would have came a little bit sooner in the film. So it wasn't so jarring with their introduction when they're introduced and they're automatically to each other's throats. But then Dewey tells her about a woman who was calling from stab three, wanting Sid's record. And when he told her that she wouldn't be able to get it, uh, the police station was broken into and Gail's like, Oh, what did they steal Sid's file? And Dewey's like, no, I had already removed it he gets a call from Jennifer Jolie that demands that he, that he come and, and and assist her with something. So he has to leave. And when he gets to her house, she's freaking out about Sarah's murder. And she has made the realization that the characters, cotton and Sarah candy, the character of candy are dying, have, have died in the same order. They're dying in the script. Gail's like, okay, well who dies next in the script? It's, She takes the grip and she walks over to Gail. She's like, who dies next?
1: You do. The the drama, the sheer drama that that Parker Posey is is serving here is just delicious. I love her red uh, vinyl pants or pleather pants. I love her with a cigarette. You see this, someone's going to pay for this. Like she's just, she's so intense. And even in the closure of the moment when she jumps into her fucking bodyguards arms, like just out of nowhere, she just leaps into his arms. I mean, the choices, man, the choices, they're all so delicious. I love everything she's given me.
0: She understood this assignment when she took this role. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, she is just a joy to watch. Like this is an an actress who I, I don't think you can think of a horror film. And I'm specifically talking about a horror film. Let's specifically talk about a slasher film. I don't think I can think of another slasher film where an actress just bit, bit into a role as hard as Parker Posey does with this one and makes it her own gives the characters quirks it's just it's a phenomenal performance and i mean i can see why she is the favorite in this film because it is like i said a joy to watch whenever she's on screen apparently dewey lives in this trailer on her property and (laughs) yeah it's just weird weird It's it's a weird little it's not even a nice trailer it's like one of those old like 70s like silver bullet looking trailers.
1: It's the same trailer he lives in in fucking five. I feel like the exact same same setup.
0: (laughs) They moved it. They moved it off the property. But yeah, so he is living in this trailer and Gail's like, what you're living here with her. And he's like, yeah, I I make her feel safe. And so he says, he's going to go to the crime scene, meaning the the studio where where Sarah was murdered. Uh, And he demands that the bodyguard keeps an eye on Jennifer and the bodyguard's like, hey, do drop. Just a, just a word of advice. I'm the one that's a certified celebrity bodyguard. I have all these people listed under me. So uh, why don't you think about who you're giving orders to? Because you're just a failed cop.
1: I love that nickname do drop for him. Like if there's one thing to take away from this film other than Parker Posey's performance, it's the nickname Dewdrop for Dewey. Uh, it really sticks for me. Um, also, this bodyguard is such a fucking asshole. He's barely in it. But uh, he leaves quite an impression with me. I do enjoy a lot of his dialogue.
0: Yeah, Patrick Warburton. He is, he's, again, in it very briefly, but probably one of the standout characters in the film, honestly. Kincaid and his partner, Wallace, are at the crime scene. There's been another photo of Maureen left on Sarah Darling's body. Gail shows up, and immediately, like, Wallace, Kincaid's partner, is like very not into the fact that gail is just like waltzing into the picture and she's like no it's okay i'm working with kincaid and he's like oh okay i guess i'm gonna go with dust fingerprints now with jane (laughs) paulie
1: that the other detective has also some of the best one-liners in this film but he serves barely any purpose he's just there to crack some really good lines and then he never comes back again
0: uh so they're discussing the fact you know because gail's freaked out she's like oh my god Uh, this is terrible. I'm supposed to die next. And Kincaid's like, well, actually there's three scripts and we don't know which one the killer has read. And in all three scripts, three different people die next. So who's going to die next is a mystery. Now production has completely shut down. Roman Bridger is very unhappy and thinks that um, he's next. He is adamant that he's going to be next and everyone's like, "Well, why do you think that?" He he holds up the uh the trophy with a broken head and he's like, "You don't tell me this isn't a sign." <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do like that moment, especially when earlier when she's trying to like tape the thing on. Yeah. Like, like they really give it like a moment, so when you see it it does feel like it really paid off. Um and it also they aren't smart in the way like Roman is not that major of a playing factor. Like he comes and he goes but so many things happen to roman that make it seem like he's like on the unfortunate receiving end of all of the 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 woes and the pitfalls that are coming from the production falling out from underneath him um it seems like he's really affected and struggling with it so because of that like you don't i don't want to say you don't suspect him of being the killer but you're like oh this guy is definitely like going through shit right now he's not the first one i'm going to suspect i'll say that first time viewing this i thought this guy was just a mess and was just a little too sloppy to be the killer.
0: Exactly. And I think it was a smart decision. It was a smart decision because he definitely comes off as being very, very, very affected by the fact that he is not going to be able to do the stab movie. And he realizes this is going to really be a a wrench in his career. Uh, And so your mind is going to the, Idea that well he's not going to like sabotage himself to be the you know to kill people like he's not going to sabotage his own production and then they they do something else I don't know you you, some people might say it's a it's a cheat later on in the film with him I mean I think it's kind of clever honestly but yeah I don't think I suspect I mean I saw this film when it came out in theaters I don't think I suspected him upon the first viewing of this film at all I think I was pretty shocked uh, when he was revealed as the killer oh spoiler alert but we're assuming you've seen Scream 3 people. Good lord. Oh, my
1: God, Troy. Every, people are turning it off. I know. They're shutting it Oh, my God. I
0: spoiled a 20-year-old movie. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> but, yeah. Uh,
0: so the detectives show up, and they are—they basically start interrogating Roman because he was apparently the last person to talk to Sarah Darling on the phone. And he's like, no, I wasn't. And they're like, well, her roommate says you were, and Sarah Darling says you were, and her your phone is the last one to call. So they have to take him to the station. And of course he's like, somebody's just trying to ruin my movie. I, I swear I didn't talk to her. God, Roman.
1: Remind me not to sleep with him again. <laughs> Sli- slipping in there with a goddamn one-liner. God damn it, Parker Post. Well,
0: you know, I don't I don't blame her. I don't blame her. Roman's Roman's he's cute. He gets sexier as he gets sexier by the end of the film. Whew, I'm all about him. Scott Foley, yes, yes, yes. Stab me, Daddy. He he looks good. So uh, we cut to Sydney at home, isolated farm, working that woman's domestic abuse hotline where she gets a call and it's her mother's voice.
1: I got, listen. Okay, here's the deal. Say she, <laughs> give me a minute here now. Give me a minute. Okay, so you're supposed to tell me, <laughs> you're supposed to tell me that this voice modulator is so adv- advanced that it is able to somehow recapture the subtle tones of a deceased woman's voice. Like even if it was something that was so like technically uh, accurate that I couldn't talk into it and be like, blah, blah, blah. And it would come back and sound like me. This woman, Maureen Prescott has been dead for years. How did he get a sample of her voice to begin with? It's not like I could just go out there and find a sample of Maureen Prescott's uh, smooth vocal tones and recreate them to be a dead-on accurate de- depiction of her voice that would convince her daughter to think that she was speaking to her deceased mother like i just i don't understand how this technology is so uh far advanced it makes no sense to me troy can you get, can you enlighten me here
0: scooby dooby doo Where are you? That's all I'm going to say. It makes zero fucking sense. There is not a device today, 20 years later, that is going to accurately, so accurately, copy, mimic someone's voice particularly that voice of a dead woman. How did he get it? How did he get it? Because Marine Prescott died like years prior to this. So let's say, okay, so one and two happened over the course of two years, right? Okay. So let's say this was, they're on stab three in scream two. They were just doing the first stab. So you had, we have stab two in between them. So let's say like six years has passed. It's been a total of six years since Marine Prescott died. You're trying to tell me he's had that voice recorded of Marine. How did he get it? I guarantee you that 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 device was not around and when Marine Prescott was murdered, it's not it's not around now. But it, yeah, it makes zero sense. I also, I'm not a fan of the fact that Maureen Prescott speaks to Sydney like she's fucking Mrs. Bates from Psycho.
1: Oh, she sounds maniacal.
0: Well, she's like mother is talking to you. I'm like, where where was it ever established that that Sydney had a, a relationship with her mother, where her mother was like? demanding and like a, a, a Norma Bates type
1: character that she says at numerous times, do what mother says, Sydney, turn on the TV. Well, and my, uh, my, my biggest dilemma here though, my biggest issue out of all of this is like, if you're going to go full fantasy sequence, like, I mean, at least in five or five and six, they stuck to it. Like, you know, they, it is, an, it is a manifestation of her overall of her, uh, homicidal tendencies you know she's seeing visions of her father and that is the purpose that's the reasoning behind it here they start off by giving me some some nonsense dream sequences and it's definitely a dream sequence because she dreams that the killer jumps through the window and attacks her and all that shit and it's a dream but now you are bringing that into her reality like she's actually hearing her mother's voice she's starting to think that she's like losing her mind well he certainly did not have the ability to go in and manipulate her dreams. So how does he know to even use this against her to use this against Sydney to start bringing the mother's voice into play later on, to start convincing Sydney that she's having visions, uh, make it think that she's hearing voices in her head. Well, listen, I'm sorry. When I hear voices, when I actually hear somebody speaking to me from a distance, uh, projecting their voice, even if it's through a voice modulator, there is a very, very much, I, I'm aware of that being the reality. That that is happening in front of me. I can hear it. It's a real thing. You can't tell me after this has happened. Oh, you're just having a you're having a hallucination. You were just fantasizing, hearing your mother's voice, or that you know that that body bag that just stood up in front of you. You were just seeing things. Like I, I do not buy it. I cannot stretch the reality enough to be convinced that. Uh, that this is actually happening to Sydney, that he's actually verbally speaking to her in her mother's voice, and she doesn't separate that from what she thinks is going on in her head. I don't buy it. She's too strong-willed of a character. Sidney Prescott has killed people. Like she's not going to be questioning her mental sanity at this point, especially when you're presenting it in such a lame way. I don't know. I mean, do you get where I'm going with this? It just—it seems like too too far stretched.
0: I do because there are moments where she, you can, it looks like Sydney is actually buying the fact that this is her mother. Like she's listening to this person, like this, like the person says, Mother's talking to you, turn on the TV. And Sydney turns the TV on. And it is a news report of uh, Sarah Darling being murdered. Yeah. And why is she all of a sudden having visions of her mother and dreams about her mother? That wasn't at play in part two. We never saw her bring up her mother, really, in part two at all. So why in this one, years later, is she all of a sudden starting to have all of these visions and hallucinations of her mother? But anyway, so Ghostface's voice now speaks and says, Do you think it's over, Sydney?" And now we get, this is the scene, Roger, I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) This scene at Jennifer's house that evening, where the cast is there. This is the scene that when I was in this theater, this is a scene that I right away was like, okay, fuck this movie. This is not a scream movie. Don't know what it is, it's not a scream movie. This is the scene. Because that evening the cast is at the house, at Jennifer's house, Tom's tearing up the script, Jennifer and Dewey go into her room and they are like talking about Gail being like a narcissistic bitch. Dewey's like, oh, well, yeah, she's just hard, but you just got to get to know her. And like he sees this photo of Jennifer as Gail. And he's like, oh, my God, you look just like her. And Jennifer's response is, oh, do you sound like you're still in love? And they're just like, he's like, no, I haven't forgot how cruel she is. But this bodyguard, Jennifer Jolie's bodyguard, Stone, shows up and catches her and takes her inside. You know, they go inside and right away, Gail's like, oh, you looked too comfortable in that bedroom and Gail and Dewey kind of go off on their own and Gail tells him that Roman was released because the calls did not come from his phone it was a cloned cell phone how common are cloned cell phones because I feel like in the scream universe they're quite common cell phones are getting cloned left
1: and right cellular evolution at this point was still pretty behind i mean when you see the phones that they're using in this movie they look pretty fucking clunky so i'll still buy it if this was if they were trying to tell me today in scream six someone had a clone cell phone i'd be like go fuck yourselves we've evolved too far beyond that but i mean you look at the phones they're using in this movie they are they still have light up buttons and everything they look very dated
0: (laughs) yeah so she also tells dewey that she found out that Two years before Maureen met Sydney's father, she left Woodsboro. And there's absolutely no trace of where she went. And she shows him the picture that was left on Sarah's body. And he right away notices that it's the same background that he just saw in the Jennifer Jolie picture. So they are at the exact same building. So... Dun-dun-dun, Maureen Prescott has been at Sunrise Studios before.
1: And it's not just the same background, it's the exact same photo, which Jennifer Jolie has been digitally added up to. <laughs> like, I mean, it is, there is, it is the exact same angle. It, it It's very specific.
0: Yeah, so Bodyguard Stone gets a call from Dewey. Uh, he tells Dewey he's checking out his trailer to make sure nobody's in there uh, to take him, to off him. He's like, I'm just checking your tra- trailer, Dewdrop. I don't want anybody to off you like they did your sister.
1: Oh, it's
0: cold. cold. Yeah, very. Dewey's response is, what? I can't believe you said that. That makes me angry. And he jumps out in its ghost face uh, and stabs him in the back and then proceeds to like beat him with a frying pan.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I like the setup here. I love that Stone is stealing quarters and pocket change from Dewey. Like, his character, for being so minor, is so detestable that I I do appreciate the the lead up here. But, like, as soon as he starts beating him with the goddamn frying pan, I was like, what is this, like, Bugs Bunny? Like, it doesn't, again, it's not scary. Um, uh, I do like the moment coming up here in a moment, though, where the whole cast is in the house the power goes out or whatever, you know, Dewey's got the gun. He's pulling the gun at everybody. There's this whole gag uh, where he's, he's like turning it to everybody. And they're all like, don't shoot me. And then he turns to the door and you see stone approach them. And he's, you know, still alive, but he's on the very edge of death. And there's this really cool shot of him walking up before he drops with a knife in his back. I do like that moment. I will say, um, but it's not enough to call it a good kill.
0: Yeah. So when he drops to the ground Dewey runs out to like check to see if he's dead and he hears footsteps so he gets everyone to run back inside the lights go out immediately so they run back to the out other outside where the pool is and everyone like they hear a phone ring and everyone's like pulling their phones out there it's like it's not me it's not me jennifer jolie realizes it's the fax machine ringing in the house but how when the power's out like that doesn't make any sense. Oh,
1: good. Point. A fax machine is. I didn't even think of that. Work when
0: your power's up. But we'll go with it because this whole fucking sequence that happens is fucking ridiculous. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. This is one of the scenes that makes me hate this fucking movie, or made me hate this movie for the longest time because this is not a scream movie. You don't blow people up in a scream movie. I'm sorry. I know it's a stupid thing to get mad about, but it's it's like me getting angry when a killer uses a gun in a slasher movie.
1: No, we well, get that in this too. Ugh. You get that plenty of that in this movie.
0: <laughs> so yeah, basically the fax machine is spitting out pages of a script that's dictating what they're doing. It's like, oh, the lights go out in Jennifer Jolie's house, and the, and and they run back outside, and like Tom, who we've gotten to know this Tom diddly. like this is again we talked about. Christine being the least developed character in the film. Well, Tom, he's right behind her because we've spent zero time with this character. But for some reason, he wants to go back in the house, to the script to see what's going on. And there's like a page where it's like, oh, the, the killer will give mercy to. And he's like trying to light a match to read the rest of it. And it, when he turns the, flips the match, it's like it says whoever smells the gas. And then the fucking house explodes.
1: It's so Unexpected. And like, the killer was really like going out on a limb with this one, hoping and praying that it worked out in the killer's favor, which it somehow does. Like, it, 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 to tell me that the killer strategically was going to set up this whole fact situation, then hope that they actually came back in to read the facts. Shame on Tom for even going back into that fucking house. Like, I'd be like, I don't give a fuck what that script says. If I don't read it, I don't know it. I'm getting the fuck out of here. He goes back in, so he automatically deserves to die. Then the killer placed apparently a lighter out, hoping and praying that this guy would light the lighter in order to die. Like, I mean, I, the, the fact that this worked is shocking. Like, the killer really had to, like, give a big sigh of relief after this kill happened because it is complex. It, it has no business actually being a successful death. But the guy lights the lighter, the house blows up, and oh boy does it blow up. And people are flying over railings, uh, over fences, rolling down hillsides. Uh, I do love seeing the three of them just tumbling, tumbling, somersaulting down that hill. They all get separated. Um, And yeah, man, you know, the explosion, again, and I, I said this earlier in the movie, but it feels like they were trying to make up with some of the some of the lack of, of overall just quality story arcs by just going bigger again, jumping the shark. Uh, they're like, well, maybe if we throw some explosions in this, it'll work. Just like earlier, they had a high speed chase sequence with cotton. Now we'll blow up a building. They uh, that hasn't happened in a scream movie yet. That's exciting. Uh, and it just doesn't feel like it has a place within the franchise. I don't understand why this is the route they took. You barely see the guy blow up. I mean, you see a moment of him through the glass. It's, kind of cool, but it doesn't, it's not, I don't even consider it really a kill. It just happens by chance. I'm, again, I'm shocked that this kill actually worked out. I don't know how the killer managed to pull this off.
0: Was he trying to kill... Do you think he was trying to kill everybody at once? Or, uh, yeah, what's the process here? Did he think all of them were going to die? Was he just... Whatever one wandered into the house was going to be the one that he was fine with dying? Yeah, it's weird. And, and like, yeah, this explosion, car chases, you know, all this stuff. This film, so far, has more in common with, like, an action movie than it does a horror movie. It, it really does. And, that again, that's what makes it so, like, tonally different than the first two films. And it really is, of all six films in the franchise, it is the one that I think sticks out like a sore thumb in terms of tone. And does it really feel like a Scream film? At least we can say Scream 5 and 6 feel like Scream films. This does not at all. I mean, explosions, really? Come on, come on. Uh yeah, so they fall down a hill. Uh Dewey gets up and realizes that that Gale's down by the vehicle on the road and he sees that Ghostface is coming up behind her. So he starts shooting. Shoots Ghostface, but Ghostface is able to roll under a car and is gone by the time Dewey gets down the hill and gets to Gale. Gale and Dewey have this little brief moment where uh she thanks Dewey for saving him until Jennifer Jolie comes irate. She's like, what are you doing? Who's Who gave you a place to stay? Who are you supposed to be protecting? And, like, she literally hauls off and, like, punches Dewey, which causes Gail to punch uh, her and knock her to the ground. And this is when we get the line, my lawyer liked that. And Gail said, so did I. Uh,
1: one issue I have with how this all kind of uh, concludes here is it's the first time it, it introduces the idea that that this killer cannot be shot, um, at all. Um, it comes down to the fact that the killer is clearly wearing a a bulletproof vest. But I mean, Dewey has become the master of body shots because he manages to only ever hit the killer without actually shooting him because of this bulletproof vest. Um, and it it does become an ongoing thing. I mean, everybody's wearing bulletproof vests by the end of this movie. But um, it it, it Even though it's explained, like, it takes an element of believability out of the whole thing. Because, come on, you're not going to tell me that even if this fucker has a bulletproof vest on, that he's not going to get a leg shot, um, an arm shot, I don't know, a head shot, something. Like, and then, also, if you're shot in a bulletproof vest, it's not like you're just, like, up and running. I mean, you're still feeling that shit. Like, you're on the ground. You're, like, hurting. So, the fact that this guy just got shot four or five times in the torso, like, bang, 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 before Dewey just slips and falls down the hill like a fucking idiot because that's i mean literally this i love dewey but he cannot get shit done ever uh he falls down the hill he looks up the killer's gone i i don't again i don't buy it but there's so many things about this movie i don't buy already i guess i just need to fucking roll with
0: it yeah well dewey also notices that there is another photo of marine laying on the ground by the vehicle so he goes and picks it up and on the back of it ghostface has written i killed her so, at the police station, Kincaid is proposing or suggesting that there might be a third killer, you know, along with Stu and Billy, as his insinuation. And he's like, I need to talk to Sid now. And Dewey's like, I don't know. I don't really want to give her location away. So, Kincaid threatens him, supposedly, with like a polygraph or something. And Dewey he goes out and tries to call her, but there's no answer. And talk about perfect timing, Roger. Who walks in the police station?
1: God damn it. But I I love it. Every time one of them turns around and sees each other, I mean, it just fills my heart with joy. Dewey, when he sees her, oh, the joy in his face. They run to each other. They love each other. They're friends. There's one thing these movies uh, provide for me in the sense of satisfaction. It's seeing these three fuckers just getting together, having a good old time.
0: He is concerned that she's there. And she tells him, "Ghostface found me. I got a call, and I'd rather be with people than alone." So she goes into Kincaid's office, and then of course Gail is, and Sydney hug, and she meets Kincaid, and they ponder how the killer could have gotten her number. Gail asks Dewey if he has it stored in his memory. And he starts to think. She's like, "No, your phone memory." It's like, "I don't know. I don't think so." But then Sydney notices on the wall all of the photos of her mother at the studio. And Kincaid is like, do you recognize any of these pictures? And she says, no, but I want to know, I want to see this place where these pictures were taken. So they are off to the studio. So Sydney can see this place. And uh, as Gail, doing and Sydney get out of the car, the partner kind of teases Kincaid about going and getting Sydney flowers. It's kind of a weird thing, but it is, I guess, sort of foreshadowing that Gail or that Sydney and Kincaid are going to end up liking each other, which you can kind of tell they do. Okay, so <laughs> I love me some Heather Mataratsu, Roger. I do. I adored her in Hostel 2. If you guys don't think I'd like Heather Mataratsu, listen to her Hostel 2 episode, which was like four or five episodes ago. I adore Heather Mataratsu. Not in this. Not in this. I, I did not need this scene. I did not need this scene.
1: Oh, it's so po- weird. And
0: What is she doing there? Like, How did she know that all three of these were going to show up at this studio at this per- precise time because she just pops out of this trailer.
1: My biggest issue with it is the fact that, like, it's not like Heather Matarazzo's Martha Meeks had been introduced previously as a sibling to Randy, and we're like, oh, familiarity. Like, literally, like all of a sudden they like walk up to the studio, Heather Madurazu's standing there. <laughs> they're like, oh, hey, Martha. And they're like, and then someone's like, who's Martha? And they're like, oh, it's Randy's sister. Can't you tell? I'm like, can't you tell? They These two, they don't look anything alike. Like, what, because she's wearing leopard print pants? She's dressed kind of weird? Is I, or is it just a strange family? Like, okay. And then, like, okay, I love Heather Maderatu, but I don't know, like, who instructed her to deliver her lines all with, like, a look of shock and wonder in her eyes. Like, everything she says, she's like, She takes it really slow, first of all. It's like a bit, she's kind of a little bit of a simpleton. And she's like, we miss you all back in Woodsboro. Do we make sure you come and say hi to the family, okay? Like, I'm like, Heather Matarazzo, like, did they ask you to really, like, take it slow? (laughs) Like, were you, like, did you really have to chew on every single word, uh, every single syllable to get it out? Like, because it just doesn't sound natural i don't understand what they're going for with this i don't know why she's there she's she's there she gives them the tape the tape alone is a problem in my book like okay way to force some 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 much needed exposition force it on us and then never touch on it again the fact that she's got this tape needs some more explanation. And then, just like that, she's like Glinda in Munchkinland. She just floats away, and you never see from her again.
0: No, but why? Okay. It's- why has she why has she waited this long to give him this <laughs> hey, tape I don't know she just comes out of nowhere I I get it I get what they were going for you know a lot of fans were mad that Randy died in part two so like I think they're thinking oh well here we can give Jamie Kennedy a, ca- a cameo and satisfy the the people that were upset that we killed Randy off but it really it's just jarring it's just jarring and yeah her performance here is not the strongest she's ever been. Yeah. There's just a weird cadence to her delivery that outfits doing her no favors. Uh, It's just horrible. And then like you get Randy. Okay. So the group goes in and they're watching this video of Randy. Who's like, Oh, if you're watching this, I guess I didn't survive the, the murders at Windsor college. Oh boy. And like, it's trying to be comedic because there's people that are like pounding on the door, trying to get in. He's like, Lo, give me a moment. I'm, I'm giving my last will and testament And but we don't need this. Like we do not need this. It's him telling them what a trilogy is like, Oh, if you're part of a trilogy, all bets are off. Anything can happen. Something from the past is going to come back to bite you in the ass. So fucking shoehorned in. Like, what is the point of this,
1: man? You know, it, I I appreciate the idea of fan service. I really do. But um, if you would have removed this whole moment, it wouldn't have affected the storyline at all. They never reference back to it. They never think about it. I feel like there had to be a lot of scenes in this movie where Nev Campbell was like, oh, "Okay, let's just get it over with," and then she fucking sits there and knocks the the acting out of the park. But you could see there's 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 just occasionally like a soullessness in her eyes because I'm like, God damn it, like. Sh- this this does, should not be happening. Like, none of these things, I don't need any of this. I love Martha Meeks in the sense of the fact that she's just in the series. Like, bring her back. Bring her back in Seven with a shotgun and a wife beater defending her children. I'll take it. Any day of the week. But in this movie, without any backs like backstory or setup at all to who Martha Meeks is, this seems so disjointed and out of place. And, i mean at least kill her off she walks away then you follow martha meeks she walks to her car she gets killed i would have been okay with it but it's they never revisit it again and because of that it seems it seems simply like fan service and nothing more and because of that feels very hollow
0: not only do they never revisit it they don't even give the characters a moment to reflect on it like they watch the they watch (laughs) the video and then they're off like she's like bye yeah and she's like Come back to what? Come to Wordsboro and visit us. Do we?
1: Like, like, who is this woman? He's like, I've never seen this woman before in my life, this Martha Meeks. I would suspect her to be the killer more than anybody. You're showing up in my fucking lot. You're giving me a a tape of your dead brother that you've been hiding for a multitude of years, just waiting for the right moment to surprise me with it. I definitely think you, Martha Meeks, are the killer. All signs point to yes, including those fucking pants.
0: Oh, those pants. Gail has an idea, though. She's going to go do some investigative work on her own. So she goes over to the studio archives and tries to get in. And of course, the door's locked so she can't. Jennifer sneaks up behind her um, to tell Gail, you know what? From now on, I'm going where you go because if the killer wants to kill you and I'm with you, then they're going to kill you, not me. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, not at all, Gail says. But Jennifer gets her in the archives with her badge and this is the the moment that they start to become buddy buddy and I love their I love their moments as investigative partners together. It's actually really endearing. They go downstairs into the basement and we get a, a, another cameo, a little bit more tolerable than Jane and Silent Bob I'd say, right? A very self-referential cameo by Miss Carrie
1: Fisher. Oh my God. Well, you know what? Let's pour one out for that broad because she's one of my favorites. I fucking love Carrie Fisher more than most human beings. Um, and I'll take her wherever I can get her. And luckily, Carrie Fisher is such a master of like well-timed comedy that this doesn't feel as gratuitous or over the top or forced as that fucking Jay and Silent Bob moment that just cut it from the movie can't they just re-release it now and cut it from the movie like I hate that scene so much but this I really love this moment I really fucking love Carrie Fisher I love how dry this is all played that picture of her fucking like on the wall Uh, that that frame portrait of her Bianca Burnett (laughs) Bianca. (laughs) (laughs) Bianca Burnett like it's clearly Carrie Fisher and they're like are you and she's like nope but I get it all the time I was up for Leia. I'm just not the one that fucked him for the role. Like, I am I fucking love Carrie Fisher. I love her so much. She never took her place, her place, took herself seriously. Uh, and because of that, I really think this moment surprisingly works. This is how you do a cameo moment, in my opinion. You don't fucking slather it on thick. You don't have characters from some other universe trotting over into the Scream set and, and appearing as Jay and Silent Bob. They do not exist in that universe. But this this moment, being that Scream is such like a pop culture uh, phenomenon at this point, let's be real. Having someone like Carrie Fisher pop on in for a little "How'd you do?" I'll take it. And I love this moment.
0: Oh, it's a fun little scene. I love, yeah, how dry it is considering she's she's being very very very, uh, you know, self referential. It's a lot of fun. Uh, they want to know like who. Gail wants to shows her the picture. It's like I need to know who this is and. She's being very adamant that she's not going to tell her. So Gail, Gail offers her $50. She's like, well, maybe you'll work for a president. And, Car- and Carrie Fisher pushes the $50 back and says, yeah, the president
1: of the studio.
0: <laughs> and Jennifer Jolie's is like, who are you a reporter for? Woodsboro, hi.
1: But then she takes off that ring. Oh, I love her.
0: The ring and slams down on the desk. She's like, it's worth $2,000. Are you going to help Gail Weathers or not?
1: And that's when you know those two broads are fucking working together. And I love it. Like from here on out, it's just Gail and Jennifer taking on the world together. Yeah.
0: And then, so Carrie Fisher takes them to the files and is searching and says, yeah, I know Maureen. She was an actress here that went by Rena Reynolds, Jennifer chuckles. And she's like, oh, Rena Reynolds, a stage name. You should talk Judy Jergensen. <laughs> And, you know, she shows them, she, uh, shows Gail and Jennifer, the picture. And on the back, there are some films listed and Gail's like, what are these? And she's like, oh, those are all John Milton movies that Reno was in John Milton movies. And we cut to a bathroom scene with Sydney and it's reminiscent of her bathroom scene in scream the first scream minus the two bitchy girls, uh, but she hears like she hears somebody in a stall and then she like looks down and she sees like a foot black boots get up on the toilet. So she gets her little mace out and pushes the stall door open and it is just Angelina with what falls a ghost face mask, a voice changer. She has all kinds of shit that that makes her look suspicious.
1: A cell phone, like yeah, she's got all these props. And I do appreciate like with the character of Angelina, they, they start to give us this fun little bit of development here which is a route I I kind of almost wish they would have incorporated where she seems really kind of like obsessed w- with Sydney like you, you know to be in her presence she's just like oh my god the real sydney prescott i you know i i was going to play you in the movie i just wanted to make you proud like in a way i almost find this storyline if this would have been like the final result um because of the way she plays her character so meek but slowly becoming like less and less likable as the movie goes on I almost would have like enjoyed this better because there's definitely something there with this character. They just don't explore it at all. She has all these little red herring moments. And this is like the key one, this whole thing where she has the ghost face mask and everything. But earlier, like during the explosion, she's the last one to walk down and she looks all like fawn eyed. That's all she does. She looks fawn eyed, but there's definitely a little crazy going on behind the eyes. And, I would have loved to have seen this character be maybe like one of the killer reveals just because there's something cuckoo bananas with her that they could have explored that they just didn't push it far enough.
0: Yeah, well, she wants to. She wanted all these things for souvenirs. And when she leaves Sydney, Sydney realizes she forgot uh, that Angelina forgot her brush. So she goes after her and she ends up on the set of Stab 3, including the replica of her old house. So she goes in and like I said, it's literally set up exactly like her old house, including her room. And she hears a noise uh, and like the door closes. So she's able to rig the door, her closet door and her bedroom door like she did in the first one. So like when you try to open the bedroom door, it gets blocked by the closet door. And she backs up because she's hearing something outside. And all of a sudden, Ghostface grabs her through the window uh, and she falls down below. There are some cool chase scenes that parallel her first chase scene in the first film. Like, she has to run up the stairs. When she shuts the door and gets back in the house, there's a scene of Ghostface popping out of the hall closet, like he did in the first one. Um, she runs into another room, and there's no floor. So she's like literally hanging there. And when Ghostface opens the door, she's able to grab him and pull him and throw him down to the bed below. Uh, and then this is when like she hears her mother's voice. So she goes into the room, and there's like a bloody body bag on the floor. It gets up and comes towards her saying, Sydney, and it's her mother's voice. She jumps out the window, lands below, and of course Dewey and the cop show up. The cop runs up there. Nobody is up there. I mean, I like this. This is, I mean, it's very reminiscent of part one. Um, I mean, I feel like this is a staple for a scream film. This this exact particular chase scene with, with Sydney Prescott. It happens in part four, it happens in part five. Uh, it's it's always the same. Her running up the st- stairs, Ghostface chasing her. But it's pretty well done here, minus the ghost Marine.
1: It's probably one of the best moments in the film overall. Like, I mean, I've been waiting for a proper chase. I didn't get it with any of the other kills before this. Everyone kind of just gets killed off right away. Uh, so here, like, yeah, you get a proper chase. And when she does open the door and she's hanging on, and then she thinks... Quick enough to grab the killer and throw him down on the the to the bed below. Um, you know she makes some of her wise Sydney Prescott moves. Uh, she's always been really good at making like an in the moment decision, and so, so this does feel very um, right within the film. You know it feels like it finally hits a, a scream kind of pacing for a moment. There doesn't last long. Of course, we immediately have that goddamn talking body bag. Uh, with the, the voice of Maureen Prescott coming into play. Is it real? Is it not? I don't even fucking know. And then this detective, he's like, there's nobody up here. And he looks down as though he doubts her. And I'm like, this, this is a woman who has survived multiple murder attempts. Sydney Prescott is the, the survivor of what is now, this is a third attempt on her life. If anything, you do not need to doubt this woman and her ability to survive and also if she's saying she fucking saw and heard shit and she got thrown out a window or what happened you know whatever the fuck happened here i'm gonna fucking believe her i'm gonna believe that someone just attacked her because it's it's made seem like a few people think that she's maybe like hallucinating and i'm like absolutely fucking not absolutely not
0: well even kincaid has a has a moment where because she's like he's up there he's in woodsboro and kincaid's like that's not woodsboro Sid. And so it's like he even he has like this doubt that she is playing with the full deck at this point. Uh, Dewey believes her and K K takes her away. Gail and uh, Jennifer show up and to show Dewey the photo and tell him that Maureen was an actress for Milton. And that's where all these photos are coming from. They're her headshots. So inside John's Milton's office, Roman is still bitching about losing stab three. Gail, Dewey, and Jennifer come in the office to confront Milton. Uh, at first, he says he doesn't recognize or doesn't know Arena Reynolds until Dewey says he'll call you know, the detective. And then all of a sudden, he's like, yeah, I barely knew her. And she was a bit player in a few of my films. And this is when Jennifer Jolie is like, you, you're obsessed with her? And you're obsessed with her daughter? Probably the best line
1: in the entire film. It's so much bigger than it needs to be. But I love that, like, Jennifer Jolie, now at this point, she is, like, she is in it to solve the case. She thinks she is fucking Gail Weathers. If anything, she thinks she's better than Gail Weathers. And she is so determined to figure it out. And I love that, that... Like character choice for her like the rest of the movie Jennifer Jolie is in it to solve the case and I really like uh, how firm she gets <laughs> with this statement you're obsessed with her and you're obsessed with her daughter it's just such a big statement
0: well, I think she's pissed off that she lost her, this role like she's, she lost this film so what what else does she have to do but to figure out who the fuck is the cause of her losing the film
1: alright easy Geraldo <laughs> yeah easy Geraldo
0: you know, they're, they're questioning like why he hasn't told anybody that he knew Marine Prescott when he took on stab three, which is a movie about Marine Prescott and her daughter. And he's like, well, I couldn't tell anybody and make me a suspect. And Gail's like, well, no, I don't really think it would, but he's like, well, I don't want to get into it. It's, it's, it's old news. Do we have to bring it up? And she's like, well, it's either bring it up now, or I can dig it up on national TV. And what it's revealed is that basically in a nutshell Maureen Fresco, young actress, came out to Hollywood. Worked on some of his films. Went to a, a party, and she was sexually assaulted. She was raped at this party. And you know he's kind of an asshole because he p- kind of puts the blame on her. He's like, "Well, you know, she she had no business being out here. She couldn't play by the rules. It's like the rules are you have to like have sex with multiple men." I, Cringeworthy, and it makes him immediately unlikable. But we do find a little bit of backstory about Marine Prescott and what specifically happened to her at these studios.
1: Uh, the, the, the character of Marine Prescott, Troy. If you step back and look at her and what her story arc is through you know the the the, the Scream series, I mean. <clears throat> I hate to say it, but goddamn, the woman is portrayed to be a, just nothing but a whore. I mean, this woman, from day one, it sounds like, has just been fucking people willy-nilly all over town. She goes to LA, or she goes to Hollywood, she's fucking people there. She comes back to, uh, to Woodsboro, she's fucking ev- everyone in the town. Everybody, they're making videos about it. Like, taking men to hotel rooms, fucking them all over the place. So, like, I hate to... I hate to say that I really think that Maureen Prescott is a whore, but, like, uh, I mean, come on. If the duck quacks, it's a duck. And she's quacking. She's quacking for all the boys. So, I mean, actually, yeah, listen, I'm not saying she deserved anything that happened, especially the murder. Definitely not. But it does seem like a trend here that Maureen Prescott has been put into several very sexually precarious situations.
0: Well, it's the only... <laughs> Yeah, it's the only trait that they really give her in the film is like, oh, she sl- she sleeps with everybody. She slept with Billy Loomis's dad. She slept with Cotton Weary. She slept with the uh, And I I don't know if they were using like this this as an excuse for like why she was so promiscuous later in life. It's kind of sort of what it sounds like. And it's just it's very problematic. This whole thing is very problematic. But at least we now have established like what Maureen's story is, what her background story is and why she was at these studios, why she's fucking everything under the sun now. It's all explained apparently because one night at this Milton, one of Milton's parties, she was, I don't know. He did say, he does say that nothing happened to her that she did not want. He does make that line. I mean, it's, it's again, problematic back at the office. Sid is asking KK what he knows about trilogies and he's just, so if, okay. So If we are getting like now we're getting Kincaid's idea of what a trilogy is. Why the fuck did we need to sit through Randy's version? Because he's basically saying the same thing. He's like, oh, all trilogies. All I know is all bets are off. And of course, she's sort of suspicious of him because she's asking if he requested the case. And he's like, well, no, I was put on the case because I grew up here and they usually give me like homicide cases that are related to the, the studio because this is where I grew up. And he's very like, he becomes very compassionate and sympathetic for, with her. He sits across from her. He's like, I know what it's like to see ghosts and a horror movie playing in your head at all times. His whole thing is because he's a homicide detective. He is, he's living with the memories and the, the images of like what he has had to see as a homicide detective. He asks her what he or what she knows about her mother. And she's like, well, I know she had a secret life that I didn't know about. And ultimately I didn't know who my mom was. And he responds, well, you know who she was to you. And I'm going to go search that set because I think what you saw was real. And that's a good thing because it means if it's real, it's a person. And I can, I can deal with the person. I can either kill him or arrest him. And on the way out, she asks him what a scary mo- what his favorite scary movie is. And he says, my life, mine too.
1: <laughs> it's so
0: cheesy. <laughs> It is super cheesy, but it's a good little moment between those two. You know, she's she's definitely, like, sinking her hooks into him in terms of, like, asking him questions because she's suspicious and she's wanting to kind of draw out of him. Could he possibly be the killer? Because he definitely seems a little obsessed with this case and because he has Marines pictures everywhere and stuff like that. But it is cheesy. It is super cheesy.
1: They do do a really good job, though, with him, like, straddling the line between... Obvious red herring and genuinely likable and um, heartfelt love interest for her. Like, he is both of those things. He does a really great job of coming off as genuinely concerned for her and attracted to her. But every once in a while, he'll say something where you, as uh, as the viewer, you're like, wait a minute. That definitely sounded a little bit like a little suspicious. Do I want to like pay attention to that? Do I need to like keep that in mind? Is he the killer? He is one of the better red herrings in the film. He's surprisingly underutilized overall though. Like he is, he's a big part, but he's not as big as I think he, he should have been in my opinion.
0: He is a wonderful red herring. Actually. I mean, there are many, many moments where he said like a look that he'll give makes you question him. Uh, particularly like coming up here at the end of the film, there's almost like a Gale Weathers and Scream Two moment where he's revealed, and you're thinking, "Oh shit!" But it, it it's not what it looks like. Um, I like this character a lot. Yeah, and he's he's underutilized quite a bit, particularly for being a red Harry. And the fact that you know we know in Scream One and Two that love interests for Sydney, you know, have never really gone well. So it would be interesting to give this character a little bit more to do with her. I don't know. I, like I said, I do like the insinuation in part five that they are, they're married now and living with children and whatnot. I I do, I do like that. So maybe he'll come back. Uh, so Gail Dewey and Jennifer are in his car They're Jennifer is suspecting Milton. um, and Gail's like, no, no, no. Can't be Milton. He's, he's not, he's definitely not the one Gail and Dewey want to go to the precinct, but There's this little interaction where, no, we need to go confront Milton. And Gail's like, no, we're going to go to the precinct. And Jennifer's like, well, my Gail would be much more aggressive. And they both tell her to shut up. And they get a call from Sydney, who says that she's going to Milton's place because he has something he needs to tell her about her mother.
1: It's definitely not Sydney on the other end of that phone call
0: oh no no but she's like i want you there dewey will you come he's like yeah but it sounds exactly like sydney again this is a magical voice changer uh they get to this house beautiful house it's the same house that we as used it apparently in halloween h20 as the house that jamie lee curtis gets chased around in at the end uh they go to this house and there's a cast there's a, a birthday party there for Roman. Basically, like all the cast is there. Roman wants to go explore, so Jennifer says she'll go with him. He goes into the basement while Jennifer waits upstairs for him. Gail and Dewey are concerned that Sydney isn't there. So Gail has him use star sixty nine to call and call back the so it calls the number that was just that just called him. But instead, the phone rings, and they go into the closet. And we realize that the phone that was used to call Dewey is now sitting in the closet along with the voice changer. And they play the voice changer and realize that all of their voices are recorded. Again,
1: again, it does not make sense. This is not something that I believe existed at this time. It's a very evolved piece of technology, but uh, okay. I mean, if I have to swallow the pill, um, I I will swallow it. Um, I do feel that at this point in the game, some of the characters kind of fall into like classic cliche slasher tropes that i don't think these characters would necessarily allow at this point like everybody's splitting up everybody splits up um i don't know if i think that dewey and gale would be like yeah let's all fucking split up i think they'd be like okay everyone needs to chill the fuck out we're not going anywhere we're figuring out who the killer is uh but they do split up and and jennifer goes with roman who is he's kind of drunk and he's uh, wandering the house looking for this like theater that he mentioned, this big hidden theater that's apparently somewhere within this mansion uh, that used to be used for these parties back in the day where they would have girls. And you know, this is all starting to tie back together. And there is this moment where he goes down into the basement and and Jennifer's, like, waiting up at the top of the steps. And she's like, stop pretending I wasn't the best you've ever had. And he says, stop pretending I even remember. And she goes, stop pretending! Like, it's just it's so fucking random. But, like, again, it's a great moment for her. It, it just, it, it goes very full-out Scooby-Doo again. You know, everyone's breaking up into different little cliques. Fallen victim to all of the... Uh, kind of cliches that we don't necessarily look for in slashers, at least at this point in history. I think I want them to make slightly better choices. And the characters that have not been getting much attention up to this point receive even less now. Like, they really only focus on Gale and Dewey, and then it kind of cuts back to Jennifer and Roman. But, like, you know, Tyson's there. Don't, you wouldn't fucking know it. He's barely there. I mean, you hardly see the guy. Uh same with like, Angeline. Like she kind of like she's there for a moment and then she runs off and they go and they explore and they're afterthoughts and that's a shame.
0: Yeah, this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast. This is the, the the finale all the characters are put into one place and and the new characters are just murdered off like just like that. There's no there's no build up. They're just there to die and it loses any suspense that could have been built it loses any emotional impact because it's just they're there they're stabbed they're dead that's it that's it and there's this moment then when gail goes down into the basement to explore she opens this casket and she finds roman's dead body inside of it he has a knife protruding from his chest so she's like of course freaking out she backs up and bumps into jennifer and who's hiding in the basement for some reason and they run upstairs and they run into angelina and they're like roman's dead we got to get out of here and she's like i'm not gonna what does she say she's like i didn't fuck that pig milton so i could stay here and die with you two b-rate stars or whatever she says and she takes off running
1: it's such a quick drastic switch for the character
0: it is, right? I was just going to say it's the only like any it's the only moment of any sort of emotion we've gotten from this character of the whole film and just when she delivers that line so aggressively and you're thinking, "Oh yeah, okay, she's going to be fun." What happens? She runs down the hallway, runs right into Ghostface and is immediately stabbed.
1: It's it's a lame kill. I mean, it's it's It sucks because yeah, like they give you this one aspect of the character uh, where you think they're starting to develop something, but it becomes so apparent that they're just wanting to kill her off. Like they're like, okay, here's one more. We just got to get her out so we can get down to like you know get down to the the conclusion here because you know we're coming up on the finale. Um, And so she turns the corner. She's running, you know, running down the steps. She's like, you guys should leave too. It's crazy to stay here. And she turns the corner. There's Ghostface, stabs her in the chest. You do get this cool shot. Of the girls looking over the railing and seeing her body getting dragged away. I do like that shot. But one shot doesn't make a good kill. Even if they're screaming in complete unison before the two of them take off running together. You know, it's just another missed opportunity in this film.
0: Yeah, and it just, everything happens so quickly. They run upstairs to Dewey and they're immediately attacked. And like Ghostface slashes Dewey and Tyson comes out of nowhere. Where the fuck has he been? But he comes out of nowhere and he gets like stabbed in the gut. Uh, and Jennifer, in the meantime, is freaks out and she runs into this closet and ends up in this secret passage. Like, again, what is this fucking Scooby Doo? This is Scooby Doo 101. Uh, Ghostface chases Tyson through this house. Again, super lame kill. As Tyson's running, Ghostface pulls the rug out from under him. So he literally fl- somersaults and lands hard on his back. And then Ghostface goes up to him and throws him off the balcony. He's dead. Tyson's dead. Bye, Tyson. I mean, it's just. So quick, like all of this is happening in a moment, in a, in a span of literally sixty seconds.
1: Well, and there is a moment there, Troy, where like it's literally four people on go- one Ghostface. Like there are four people in that bedroom fighting Ghostface. The fact that they were not able to overwhelm him, I I don't understand. Like, I mean, this is this guy superhuman because they they should have been able to have you know gotten the better of Ghostface in that moment. One thing to acknowledge about this film is. Come on, like, let's be honest, this is the only one in the franchise that has one individual ghost face. There are not two killers here, as we come to find. The fact that these four could not find a way to to better this guy, um, I don't, again, I don't totally buy it.
0: Yeah, I was going to bring that up when we got to the killer reveal. This is the only Scream film in the entire franchise with one killer. I don't know if that makes it more believable or less believable, honestly, that he was able to pull all this stuff off by himself. Uh, But he goes after after he throws Tyson off the balcony, he goes after Jennifer and and she gets behind these mirrors and she's running through this passage. We see that these mirrors are like it's one way mirrors, So she can see into the bedroom to see Dewey and Gail, but they can't see her. And she's like pounding on the glass and goes faced like approaches her. And then Dewey happens to see the glass like shaking. And he's like, look, yell the glass, something's behind the glass. So he pulls out his gun. In the meantime, she's behind there screaming at Ghostface, face. You can't kill me. You can't kill me. I'm the killer and stab three. And then he stabs her. And Dewey at the same time, starts shooting the glass panes out until he gets to the one that she's behind her dead body falls through the mirror onto the floor. It's such a lame, lame, lame end for this character.
1: Oh, my God. Especially because, like, they do give her a moment where she's, like, she's fighting back. She's getting feisty. She's like, you can't kill me! You can't kill me! She's like, And she's, she's pushing against the killer and everything, and he, he gets a stab into her back, and then he stabs her in the gut. But, yeah, like, it really, mm, I don't know, like, at least when you push her through that glass, like, the killer could have just revealed himself and just fucking like slit her throat. Something big. I don't know how are there even bullets left in that fucking gun at this point? He's been firing them off at everything, you know. So I, I just um for her character, I would have wanted something so much grander and the build up again, like that whole hidden passage, though I do not understand the purpose of the hidden passages here. Um, it makes for a cool set piece, you know, her against that glass and everything. It starts to get kind of exciting there for a moment, but it just deflates and she deserved so much more for that conclusion.
0: Dewey is like, he's going to go look for Sid or something. And he decides to like break up with Gail. And like the second he goes away, Gail is pulled in, to the other room by Ghostface, face and he like holding her and pulling her down and she's able to like get her footing and push back. So they fall down the basement stairs. And when they get to the stairs, he's like knocked unconscious and Gail calls Dewey from the basement. And he's like, and she tells him I'm, I'm down, I'm in the basement. The killer's here. And he's like, well, he goes to the basement door and gets ready to open it. And he's like, well, how do I know you're not the killer? it's not the, I'm not the killer. It's me. And he's like, isn't that what the killer said? And then Ghostface awakens and she, he, she starts screaming and Dewey hears, So he barges into the basement door, sees the killer. The killer turns around and throws his knife straight at Dewey's forehead, hits him square in the forehead. And his, he falls down the fucking stairs. Like I said, Dewey, you mentioned this. Dewey's just kind of worthless.
1: Well, this whole moment where the killer like throws a knife and it like flies at the camera and hits him square in the middle of the forehead is so goofy. Um, it, I don't know. I think it's just a little uh, – they push it a little too far with the with the element of humor here because he falls down the steps. He automatically is knocked out. And, and one of the things that bums me out here is I feel like this was Scream 2. This sort have of launched into an epic chase scene with the killer and Gale, but in this sequence, Gale just kind of slumps over Dewey, and she's like, "Oh, Dewey," and the the killer like manages to like take them hostage. And I'm, I don't know, I don't feel like Gale would have just given into that at that point. I feel like Gale would have ran through that fucking basement and grabbed anything she could find to defend herself, uh, you know, against the killer. Um, I don't understand how the killer gets the upper hand here against her. It feels lame.
0: It's not shown we don't know we don't know yeah it's a big mystery about because Gail is a fighter she's about as big a fighter as Sydney so the fact that we it, it transitions to Sydney at a at the police station and she gets a phone call um, from ghostface telling her to come or he will kill Gail and Dewey and we hear Gail and Dewey screaming in the background and ghostface is like don't you want to know who killed your mom and and so she, he's lured her to the house, but before she goes, she does rifle through the, the desk drawer to find a, a gun. Um, and when she gets to Milton's house and gets out and, and is walking towards the house, Ghostface calls her again and makes her use a metal detector on herself. And she tries to be slick and not do one leg, but he notices and he's like both legs. So reveals that she has a gun in one of her boots. So she has to throw it in the pool and he tells her to go inside and, and she's like, no way. How do I know they're not already dead? And he's like, just they're right inside the door waiting for you. So she goes inside, and Dewey and Gale, yeah, they're tied to a chair. Somehow, the single ghost face got Dewey and Gale tied to these chairs upstairs. So not only did he get him tied to a chair, he got them both up the basement stairs and tied to this chair. When Dewey was dead, unconscious, so Sydney untapes Dewey's mouth and asks where Ghostface is, and all of a sudden, Ghostface appears behind her. Slaps her to the floor and then this bitch pulls out another gun. So not only did she take one gun, she took two smart and she's like, it's your turn to scream motherfucker and shoots him a bunch of times.
1: There's so many, so much gunfire in this movie. I mean, guns are prominent. If you don't like your slashers with guns like Troy, I wouldn't say scream three is the choice for you. I do want to say though, that I think when it comes to like physical battle, some of the fight scenes in this movie, some aspects of the film feel lame. Some f- aspects of the movie don't feel fully baked. Some of the fight scenes of this movie are actually fucking intense. I mean, the, 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 the multitude of fight scenes that happen here between now and the, the final... Killing of the Killer are some of the series, the franchise best. I mean, people are getting punched. People are getting their, you know, kicked. They're getting things bashed over their head. There's breaking glass everywhere. It's really actually uh, quite well choreographed. And Nev Campbell, I mean, I can watch her in a fight scene any day of the week.
0: She shoots Ghostface and he goes down and she unties Dewey. And when they go to look back at Ghostface, he's gone. The body's gone. how did he, how'd he, how's he gone when he was literally shot? She shot him at least eight times, but he's gone. And then all of a sudden, Kincaid, uh, Kincaid appears suspiciously and has his gun drawn. He's like, "I heard gunshots, so I came." And who did? I, who is here? Galen Dewey. And he sees Sydney, and so he knows he can read that she's freaked out. So he puts his gun, lowers his gun. Ghostface just comes out of nowhere and attacks Kincaid, knocks him down. And you know, there's this whole fight. There's this moment where like Ghostface bashes Kincaid's head against the fireplace. Sydney takes off and says, if you want me, you're going to have to come and get me motherfucker. And she runs into this room, which ends up being the secret, the secret screening room that Roman was looking for. And there's just this video of her mother, her mother putting on makeup, like sitting in a makeup desk, just putting on some makeup. And then this bloody fucking sheet, standing bloody sheet comes out of the room and starts talking to her.
1: This bloody sheet gets more screen time than half the characters in this fucking movie. This goddamn body bag. And this is the moment I was talking about earlier that really just fucking, ooh, it just, ooh, it makes me so fucking mad. Because lo and behold, every time that Sydney has apparently heard her mother's voice or had this hallucination or seen this talking body bag, it's actually like a physical entity. It's not at all a, a hallucination or any form of a you know, um, a mental situation for Sydney is actually physical. It's real. It's there. And I just don't fucking buy it. I just don't get it. Like I, she's smarter than that. I think she's been through enough shit that she would be able to differentiate between the two, but apparently, okay, big reveal. The voice of Maureen Prescott is in fact, something you are hearing coming out of this voice modulator somehow, some way. And with that, like the killer is revealed.
0: The killer is revealed, not before he tells her, it's time you come to terms with me and mother. And, you know, he, the ghost face is saying, I searched for her for years and I found her. I found Rena Reynolds was now living as Marine Prescott. So I showed up at her door one day and she slammed the door in my face, Sydney. She said that was Rena's life, not her. She had a new life. And we get the killer reveal. He pulls off the mask and it is. Roman
1: Bridger. That's Roman fucking Bridger.
0: Okay, let's just summarize his motivation here. We don't have to go through the whole thing because we're running long. But basically, he is upset that he went and looked for his birth mom and it ended up being a Marine Prescott. She wanted nothing to do with him. And she told him when she was at the door that that part of her life has died. And so he thought, okay, I'll make that happen, bitch. So he orchestrated everything, including... Filming her going into hotel rooms with Billy Loomis's dad and then showing Billy Loomis the footage when Billy Loomis's mom left him so that Billy Loomis would get upset enough to kill a Marine Prescott for him and bring in Stu. I mean, basically he orchestrated this whole thing and now his whole what he's going to do is he's going to frame Sydney. So he pulls out John Milton and he is going to, uh, he left like Sydney's voice on John Milton's answering machine saying, I know what you did to my mother and I'm going to make you pay. And so he pulls John Milton out. He's like, see, Sydney, don't you hate him? Don't you hate him? And Milton is like begging for his life. He's like, please, Milton, I'll give you, or please, Roman, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you another picture, whatever you want. And doesn't work because Roman just slits his throat. And this causes Sydney to freak out. She's like, God, you spineless bastard. And he literally has it all figured out how he's going to be the sole survivor. And she tells him, you know what, you kill people because you choose to. Why don't you take some fucking responsibility? And they go on this battle. I this is probably, I will say, probably one of my favorite Sydney versus Ghostface battles of the entire franchise. I mean, this gets physical. This gets physical. He does not. He does not hold back on her at all. I mean, he is beating the shit out of her. He punches her multiple times in the face. Gets her on the ground. Kicks her in the gut numerous times. Uh, chokes her until she's until she's literally almost dead. Until he's he's distracted by Dewey, who's fumbling around out the door and sticks something in the light socket so the lights go out. This causes him to release Sydney from his strangle hit, uh, hold, and Kincaid slowly comes into the room and Sydney is fucked up and she's on the floor and Kincaid's like, Where is he at? And all of a sudden Roman bashes him in the head with a stool and you know he's like looking around and he gets back up and Sydney is like, hey, lose something and she has this knife. She has it raised like the bad bitch she is. And he's like, nope, found something and he fucking shoots her. Not once. He shoots her. She falls back. This fucker goes over, stands over her body, and shoots her again. And my question to you, Roger, if you remember, when you saw this, when you first saw this, did you think that he literally killed her?
1: I did. I did. I did. And you know, I think it needed to at least have that impression because up until this point, like Sydney has always, for the most part, gotten the gotten the betterment, you know, of 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 Ghostface. So to see her finally rendered so brutalized, you know, it is, it did feel pretty fresh. Um, I would only say that three and four are the movies where I feel she really gets her ass just fucking whooped. Other than that, she tends to, she tends to get control of things and really kind of like uh, navigate the finale for the most part. She always tends to outsmart the killer, but this one he really does get the the better of, of Sydney for a bit, which is disappointing that I find the reveal so unsatisfying Because overall, like it's such a like a a, just a lame bitch motivation. Uh, It's so out of nowhere. It's so out of fucking nowhere. Like, and I think that that really shows that it does not resonate resonate with the fan base. Because when you hear people recall like the storyline, the motivation behind Scream, and why the kills happened in the original movie, um, and you know what really was the catalyst for everything that happened. You don't ever really hear people saying, "Well, it's actually Roman who set up all of the blah, 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 the whole thing." You know, like, no, I think it's really kind of faded into the background. His character's motivation feels so thin when you sum it all up. This whole side thing about his his jealousy of not being part of the family and, you know, being feeling cut off by Maureen, like I just don't care enough. It's so uh in a, in another universe. Um, And it's never really properly revisited again. So it just feels like with this movie for that to be the conclusion, it's the only film that feels like the motivation of the killer is something just completely separate and thus really just overall unlikable. Like I I find it very lame. I find it. I find this reveal to be lamer than scream sixes. A lot of people have all kinds of issues with scream six, how that concluded. I think this motivation is way more lackluster than what we got from scream six.
0: I would agree. And the, the, the issue is like, okay, so he is jealous of Sydney because he's, he's like screams or uh, what's he say? He's like, what you had should have been mine, you know, and I'm making up for the life that you stole from me. And I'm like, what life did she stole for her? her? Her life has been fucking miserable because of you. Like, what did she, it's not like she was living Yeah. I mean, she was a normal high school student. What was I mean, there's no like backstory. Why is he so upset that Maureen did not want anything to do with him? Was he was he being abused by like a foster family? I I, Why? What is the motive? What did he think that Sidney had that was so great that he did not have? I mean, he was obviously normal enough to work his way up to become a film director. So he obviously was doing something right in his life, right? So what would cause him to so desperately want Maureen to acknowledge him as her son? And what would so cause him to say that he wanted Sydney's life? His life seemed pretty damn cool. You know what? If he didn't start killing people, he was going to direct stab three, a very popular franchise in the fictional world of Scream. He would have that would have catapulted his career. He would have been more well known than Sidney Prescott. So what was the fucking point of this?
1: It is a lame, lame duck reasoning to kill a bunch of people. And I I just find it really yeah unsatisfying. Like yeah it's a great showdown, but Roman I really truly find to be the most forgettable of all the killers and it's not even because of the performance it's because of just the motivation it feels so half baked it doesn't feel like it's rooted in the scream universe it's
0: it's not if you if you sit there and think about it it makes zero sense based on and I just explain why it makes zero sense he literally he's he's talking to her like his life has been miserable but there's no indication of that like he said, like I said, if he would have just left Sydney alone, he was about to direct a third entry in a major horror franchise. I don't get it, and I don't know. The only thing that I like about the reveal is I think that Scott Foley looks fucking sexy in this final moment, these final moments of the film. That's it. That's it. The motivation is stupid. Uh, it makes zero sense. I do like the battle between him and Sydney, and I like this kind of moment where. I do like the moment where you think that Sydney is dead because when I first saw this there was audible gasps in the theater like I think that everyone initially thought that Sydney was was dead uh but we hear Gail and Dewey coming in and he's distracted for a few seconds as he's he's listening to Gail and Dewey make their way into the room and when he turns back towards Sydney she's gone Uh, And, you know, he's looking all over frantically and he star 69 his phone and and it basically rings to him. And all of a sudden she jumps out from behind the bar and like stabs him with this ice pick looking thing in the back. And like, she just goes full force. She stabs him, throws him on the floor and plunges the ice pick right into his chest. And he looks up at her and all he can say is I shot you. And then she pulls up the bulletproof vest and she's like, Maybe we do think alike. Um, and he, he makes this comment. He's like, well, you know what? Your mother's still dead. Nothing you can do can change that. I still got to make my movie. She says, like, stab three, right? This is when she plunges the ice pick into his chest. And there's this moment where Gail and Dewey come in and, like, he's dying. And she, like, they, they I, I don't know. She grabs his hand and they kind of hold hands as he's dying. I don't know how I feel about that.
1: You know, if it was in a less, the hands of a less capable actress, I probably would have cringed a bit. But, I mean, up to the very end, she's so steadfast and and devoted to the performance that it actually does feel kind of moving. You know, acknowledging that this is, is her brother. I mean, this is clearly her brother, and obviously he is fucking cuckoo bananas crazy. But the fact that she holds his hand as he passes, like, it somehow manages to be kind of a tender moment, uh, which I found shocking. That I found it to be moving, but it really is because she, I mean, again, watching Nev Campbell cry, there's nothing more beautiful than watching Nev Campbell cry.
0: Dewey tells her to be careful because, you know, Randy in his little trilogy video said that the killer is always superhuman. And she gets up and she's like, he's not superhuman, Dewey. He's not superhuman at all. But like in good scream fashion, Roman does get back up, knife raised, and starts coming at him. Uh, And Dewey shoots him multiple times, but he has that damn bulletproof vest on. So uh, Sidney has to yell multiple times, shoot him in the head, shoot him in the head. And Dewey's like, what? What? Before he finally gets it. And he plants a bullet right between Roman's eyes and shoots him
1: dead. Finally, Dewey. I mean, it's the first fucking time Dewey's managed to hit the goddamn target. Uh, Jesus Christ. But yeah, I mean, he is now dead. Thank goodness. Uh, And they can finally, I guess, have some form of peace in their lives, at least for the time being.
0: Yeah, single killer. Only the only scream film with one killer. Now we do get this little epilogue of Sydney back at her ranch and you know she's outside when this and she you know she's checking the mail or whatever. She comes back in with her dog and she's getting ready to shut the door and set the alarm, but she stops herself. And Kincaid comes in. surprise. Kincaid is is an item now in Sydney's life because he's like, Hey, we're about to watch a movie. Oh, let me backtrack. I forgot to mention the fact uh or the part when uh Dewey proposes to Gail because I, that obviously is how they're married in Scream 4. But he wants her to sign the Return to Woodsboro's book, and she's like, Why you hate that book? He's like, Would you just please do it for me? He opens it up, there's a ring inside. She puts it on, so now they're gonna get married. But Sydney comes in the house, Kincaid's there, he's like, Hey, we're gonna watch a movie, come join us. And as they as she turns away from the door and starts walking into the living room, the door creaks open and comes wide open and she turns around and looks at it for a moment and doesn't do anything. She doesn't go close it. She just goes and joins the, the group to watch the movie. And that is the end of scream three. It ends on a very, I guess, uplifting note. Uh, Sydney Prescott is not living in fear anymore for a good reason. You know, she killed the person that orchestrated everything that's happened to her, her in this life. So she has no reason to, to fear anything until 10 years later.
1: (laughs) I think that the one thing about this film that, that I find surprising it is even though it is a bit of a mess, it manages to conclude on such like a strong note, like that, that's visual, this very symbolic visual of her allowing the door to remain open and not fear what could come inside because she has full control over her life. I mean, for a movie that really was just kind of, messy, messy all over the place. It wraps up the the trilogy so neatly. And it really does feel like a conclusion to a trilogy. So when the, the fourth entry came about, it, it felt like a, a fresh start to a new chapter. Um, I really think it just ends on a strong note. Uh, all things considered, though, it is not necessarily a strong movie. It's fun as all get out. I mean, I had a great time watching this, but I have so many gripes and so many issues with a lot of the choices that were made through the course of this film, right down to the reveal of the killer. He's my least favorite character reveal, uh, killer reveal in the franchise. And I stand by that to this day. And, um, it just took the story a place I didn't feel it needed to go. I didn't want it to go that route. And so it just leaves like a bitter taste in my mouth, but I still have a great time watching it.
0: I like the simplicity of the ending. The, the ending is, is beautiful in its simplicity, right? but i also agree i i still maintain that this is the weakest of the franchise i will also say that i don't hate it nearly as much as i used to these 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 viewings these recent viewings i think i've grown a little bit more of appreciation for some parts of the film however i i i don't i guess i don't like it as a scream film and i don't like it as a slasher film Okay, and I know that's weird, but if you if it if you took the scream stuff out of it and you took the slasher stuff out of it, I mean, if it wasn't a scream film and it wasn't advertised as a slasher film, I might like it a lot better. But to me, again, I will maintain this film does not feel like a slasher film. A the killer, like you said, is secondary, but the death sequences, the death sequences in this film are rushed. I mean, you get houses blows blowing up, you get stabs that come super, super quickly characters that are dispatched in seconds. There's no buildup. Slasher films are known for elaborate chasings. They're, they're, they're known for, they're known for the kill scenes period. And in this film, all of that is just not a priority. So when you're watching this, Like I said, it doesn't feel like a Scream film. It doesn't feel like a slasher film. So it's just like, okay, I'm watching.
1: There's something that feels very PG-13 about this movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. And tonally, it's completely different than all of the other films. Uh, All of the films, yes, they have the humor, the tongue-in-cheek that run through it. But it's not as prevalent as it is in this film. And I think that's problematic, particularly when you had Scream 1 and 2 that have some really, really amazingly tense, suspenseful, scary scenes. And then you get to this one and it's void of all of that. I don't know. It still is my least favorite of the franchise. But I will say, like, I I don't necessarily hate it. And I still think Scream is probably one of the more consistent franchises, uh, slasher franchises out there. Uh, I'm curious though because I've run into people that think that Scream Three, they like Scream Three. They some there's a few people that even rank it as their favorite. So if you're listening and Scream Three is like one of your favorites of the franchise, or you you know you you like it better than Part Two, which I know I me and Tyler both Tyler Jensen we had him on we both ranked it. Scream Two is still my favorite of the franchise. Let us know. Let us know what what about Scream Three is it that makes it. When you're looking at all the other Scream films and the universe that the Scream franchise is built, what about it? Scream in Scream Three that makes it like, oh yes, that's the one that's my favorite, or that's the one that's better than? This. Because I honestly I don't get it, but I, I'm I'm open minded to hear it. So let's hear your thoughts on Scream Three, listeners.
1: Yes, we want to hear your feedback. We want to hear your thoughts on this one because we know this is a somewhat divisive title. You know, like it is a relatively goreless slasher when you think about it. Like there is not much more than blood in this movie. Uh, We've seen so much worse from this franchise. So the fact that they took it to a place with Jay and Silent Bob cameos, it just seems like they tried to shift it in a direction that fans did not want it to go. And I think fans really kind of pushed back. And that's why I think Scream, Scream 4 successfully kind of gets back to the roots of what Scream really is supposed to be. And that's something for another review. But I do want to hear fans... From you, your thoughts on this title, do you still find joy in it? Do you despise it? I want to know, uh, and I know Troy does too, as he will be taking a brief sabbatical for the next week, and maybe he'll take time to respond to your thoughts and opinions on this one. Won't you, Troy?
0: Oh, I absolutely will. This one would definitely get me uh get me excited to chat and t- to respond to your feedback on. So, yeah, guys, until next time.
1: Yeah, and I do really want to take a moment, listeners, just to acknowledge that Troy, in fact, will be taking a week off next week, uh, which is actually something very selfish for me, because come June, I will be taking a few weeks off to film the next chunk of my film, uh, Meat. My movie, Meat, is going back into production for our summer shoot, second of third uh, production phases for us and, and so we're actually in the middle of crowdfunding right now if anybody would like to contribute anything to my film please feel free to look up our indiegogo uh, we will be sharing the link everywhere um but yeah so come june i'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks so this next week troy is going to be taking a few days off because mama needs her rest and her relaxation she needs her beauty sleep doesn't she troy
0: mm-hmm. it's the end of the school year i'm exhausted mama's exhausted
1: Now that she's living in Vegas, she's going out, she's finding all the boys, all of them. (laughs) So to fill Troy's uh, prestigious seat next week, I'm bringing in a guest. I'm bringing in a guest and someone I've just recently gotten to know, but it's a fellow filmmaker, a fellow queer filmmaker. It's Colin G. Cooper, who is really primarily known for like his music video work, but he is working on a queer giallo project right now. Uh, called Bath Bomb, which I've been seeing like, kind of all over the place. They've had a really successful crowdfunding campaign. Uh, the, the promo art looks amazing. I've been really intrigued by it. So the fact that he was willing to come on to our show, I love it. And I think considering the material that he's creating, um, I thought it was just really appropriate that the title that we're going to cover together is Deep Red. Uh, so, Troy, I'm going to be so bummed that you're not here for like our first episode apart. But... It's going to be a fun one to talk about. I got to say it.
0: I I am. I'm definitely very, very saddened that I'm not going to be able to join you guys, but I will be, I'll be there in spirit. And I'm definitely going to be curious to hear your conversation on the film, Deep Red. I'm a huge Argento fan. Um, He's inspired my films, particularly Teacher Shortage. But yeah, guys, it's, this is, this is not something that's going to be a habit. We're, we're a hundred and two episodes in and we've never done this, but I, I kind of know that Roger, like I said, next month is going to be so consumed with meat, and I will be cheering him on. Um, but we don't want to miss, we don't want to like delay episodes. So we talked about it and we thought it might be a a really interesting thing to try again. It's not going to become normal, but let's, it's going to be fun. I'm going to bring on a couple guests next month when Roger can't record and it'll be interesting. And it'll be an easy way for us to still put out stuff while other things are going on in our lives, because we love this podcast. We love you guys for listening to us. So with that, and I'll have to, I'll have to share my thoughts on deep red at some point, but I'm super excited to hear your guys' conversation on that. So while you're waiting for that, check out our Patreon and let us know your thoughts on Scream 3, guys.
1: Yes, and I I will be excited to talk to you next week. But Troy will be busy getting massages and hand massages and facials. Well, facials. Mm. We'll see. Uh, treating himself to something nice and and much deserved. Troy,
0: I will miss you. I will miss you for a week. But with that,
1: guys, good night. Until then, good night.